0: Hey guys, Ian here with the Adventure Geeks Podcast. How are y'all doing today? With me tonight is my my brother, Austin. Say hi, Austin. Howdy, folks. How are y'all doing tonight? Hi. So, yeah, we're a few, about a week or so late with our third History Podcast episode. Apologies, but we had a couple of things going on in our personal lives, and we're also on vacation at the moment. Uh, You probably will see me post on our, our Adventure Geeks Podcast Instagram. We are currently in Utah. For skiing, be here for a week or two. I'll show you some kick gas video and photos next couple days, so you know just bear with us. But uh, it's good here, you know. Snow's awesome, lines aren't bad, and as tradition, crack open a cold one for the podcast. Our big oil can of Foster's from our our uh, lovely cousins over in Australia. Yeah, but I don't know if this is the stuff they drink to get the Americans. Well, it's close enough for, hmm. for government work, so. Anyway, our podcast tonight, as we told before, we're going to do a review, a film review of 1917. This came out about, what, two, three weeks ago? About roughly. Directed by Sam Mendez. If you guys have followed my our, my main adventure geeks with Ray and Eric, Sam Mendes directed one of my favorite movies of all time in our top five movies, which was uh, *Roads of Perdition. Amazing. Tom Hanks with the... Gangster mustache, gunning down bag gunning down front of all left and right. Beautiful. And Daniel Craig played an excellent creepy man in that movie. Yes, yes he did. This was before James Bond. Oh yes. Yeah, but we're not gonna talk about that. We're gonna talk about 1917. So, for all you don't know, uh Mendez, Sam Mendez was inspired by tales of his, his father or his great his great grandfather. Should be grandfather. His grandfather, who was a soldier in with the British Army in the First World War. I don't remember which regiment or unit he was with. It might have been the, the rifle brigade. I could be wrong. Yeah, us Google. I'll, I'll Google. I don't want Google it right now because I Google everything for everything, and it gets, it gets a little annoying. I am convinced though that the more people use their smartphones, the dumber they get. And I should know because I've gotten dumber over the years. I can attest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Frack you, man. <laughs> okay. Anyway, so I think that what we're gonna do is what we did last time with Midway. We'll do a movie overview plot. Of what goes on, we'll talk about the history behind the movie, and then we'll go with our feelings on the movie—what we liked about it, what we didn't like about it, what we thought they got right, what we thought they could have worked on, or you know, come close to it—and our you know thoughts and feelings of the future. Like, where should we go with this? This is the postcentennial of the First World War, so it would be nice to have more movies and ch- series about this. Get get the word out, especially for an American audience, because I think in America we kind of. We don't really view World War One in, in a not positive. Well, I don't want to say positive light, but we don't view it in a very you know. It doesn't it, get the same amount of attention as, let's say, World War Two or the American Civil War. Right. That that makes sense. Thank you. This, this is why you got the master's degree and I got the and I didn't. I'm still twelve grand in student loan debt. Hey, we well, have a shout out to everyone who has student who has student debt. Yeah, we're with you. We we appreciate the sacrifice. We are thinking that part. Anyway, so let's begin. So, 1917. It is set... Well, the year is 1917, obviously. In April. April 6, 1917. For those of you who, aren't, who don't know much about World War One, I'll give you a qu- quick crash course. Uh, the movie takes place in the Western Front in France. You have the major powers of France and England fighting the German Empire at this, at this time. This is the... Uh, Empire under Kaiser Wilhelm II, which the Holland-Zolland dynasty? I do believe so, but I'm not the expert on the dynasty. Right. They're facing off against the uh, British Empire and the French Empire. I'm also going to say French Third Republic, because technically that's what the political government is called at the time. Yeah, but they're still kind of an empire, bro. Yeah, I know they're an empire, but I'm trying to put like a, like a smile on it. Keep going. Yes, okay, anyway. So, our two main characters are two Lance Corporals. Lance Corporal's Blake, played by Dean Charles Chapman. And if you don't know, he was Tommen Baratheon in Game of Thrones. And he was Westeros' skydiving champion in that series. Yes, yes, he was. He he was playing too much of Assassin's Creed at the time when he uh, jumped off the (laughs) Oh God, I'm terrible. And we have Lance Corporal Schofield, an older gentleman. And he's played by actor George McKay. I'm not entirely sure what else George McKay has been in. I know a current roster of his uh filmography. Yeah, we can look it up later. Uh, anyway, so they're just chilling. They're, they're sleeping behind the like the front behind the front lines, and they get tasked with a mission. They don't know what mission is, and Blake volunteers to go field to help him out. He thinks it's like a simple you know food run or go deliver this message to General So and So, but they are told that one of their neighboring units, the Second Devonshire, the Second I believe it was the battalion, not the regiment. Trying to think, I want to say it was the I want to say it was the battalion. towns are pretty big compared to the American <laughs> battalions, correct? Well, uh, for those who don't know, for like from a military standpoint, it usually goes by like for a unit breakup, it goes by you know you got the squad, which is like seven to ten people. You got your platoon, which is forty to sixty people. Your company, which is roughly between one hundred to two hundred people, depending on the like the division size, the unit size, and the army. Then after company, you have battalion. Battalion is usually three or four companies mixed together, gives you roughly between 700 to, could be a 1,000 soldiers, give or take, you don't know. And then the regiment is the unit after that. That is three or four of these battalions together, roughly three, four, three thousand, four thousand men. And in the British Army, it was broken by regiments, and then it was up to brigade, which is three to four regiments to a brigade. And then three or four brigades to a division, three or four divisions to an army corps, and then three or four corps to an army, and so on and so forth. That just uh, kind of give give you a size estimate of what's going on. I want to say it was the 2nd Battalion. I don't think the 1st Battalion, if they they said, I think they said 1st and 2nd Battalion, it would have been that. It could have been the the 2nd Regiment, though, because uh, the way the British Army, well, we'll, we'll we'll cover that later in the history behind everything. Anyway, so. Blake and Schofield are given an objective, are given a mission. The Germans have withdrawn from the front lines and have moved back several several miles. The second Devonshires do not know that, and they're going to walk into a trap. There's evidence that their defenses in front of them are more concrete than they believe. It's more, it is more geared towards um, sort of like a death trap, so the general wants to get a message to the colonel in charge of the 2nd Devons to hold his attack and to save 600 men's lives and the reason he's sending these two these two land cripples out to do that is because the telephone wires between the general and the 2nd re- Devon regiment were cut and in 1917 this is way before portable radios, before walkie talkies were talking you had to, it was either a telephone line a runner signals from your rudimentary airplanes, flares, very, very, like, basic, very rudimentary stuff. It's not like today where you can, like, radio soldiers in or, like, give them, like, instant commands. This is like you got to find the regiment first and you've got to give them the orders. That could be several hours old, it, depending on if the runner actually gets to the uh, re- unit in time if they're not killed. If they're not killed on the way <laughs> they they more than once in the war. they have having a lot of times during that war. So they're tasked with going through no man's land. And they're told, "Don't worry about it. No man, Jerry's Jerry's gone. Uh, should be clear for you for No Man's Land." So they reach a good start, stop, starting point. And you, you you hear like technical terms through the, the trenches. You'll talk about like the support trenches, communications trenches, where people go back and forth. And you got the front line trenches, which are more of a more of a, like a garbage heap. Like you know. You got like the mud. You got the duckboards on the floors. Then you got like the sapper trenches, which are these little trenches dug in just before just after the main trenches it gives people like a starting off point to attack. And I think the first, this is like the first scene that I, I enjoyed with this movie. I thought they captured going over the top into No Man's Land very well. Austin, what do you think about that? I did appreciate the No Man's Land scene a lot. Really show the devastation and horror of the first world war. A lot of mud, a lot of shell holes, a lot of barbed wire, either intact or broken. That would have been common in the landscapes and a lot of dead bodies. Unfortunately, that was one of the tragic aspects of the war. Because during No Man's Land, there's really not much time or any chance to clear your dead, bear the military honors. For the most part, those that are dead are left where they lie. And that includes the horses as well. And you'll see in various stages of decomposition as you mm-hmm. go through No Man's Land with Blake and Schofield. Before get any further... We should mention that Blake has a personal mission with this mm-hmm. task he's given. His brother is with the second Devonshire, so he's a lieutenant. So he has a personal mission to stop that attack and potentially save his brother. In the U.S., we call it a lieutenant, Austin. Well, this British Army, we're going to say lieutenant. All right, we're going to play a cricket, too. And a spot of tea will be nice with some... Uh, Fish and chips. Crumpets. All right, why well, <laughs> don't we keep going for our, any British people hear this and... Uh, right kick our ass <laughs> okay oh, yeah. all right uh so yeah they're going through no man's land i thought that i thought Menes did a great job I, it could have been gorier but if he did that he probably would have lost the radar rating go to like an nc-17 rating yeah because <clears throat> some of these major battles like the casualties and the death is in the hundreds of thousands yeah but you, you see bodies during the no man's land but it's not the same like level or as numbers but like ian said if they include that much more. They will probably jack into to like an NC-17. That's still around. Yeah. And like, you can still get a sense without adding that much stuff. By that point, it's just pure gorn. I mean, especially where uh, Schofield, he gets his hand stuck in the barbed wire, cuts it. And then about a couple of scenes later, he trips and sticks his hand into a... Uh, an open chest cavity of a German soldier. a German soldier. Yeah. I'm like, all right, that that that's bad. Like, uh, you won't get that looked at before you get infected. So... They eventually make their way over to the German trenches and it's empty. It's empty. They look around. They don't see anything. They don't see anybody. And you can kind of get a sense of how better prepared the Germans were in their trenches. For like the last uh, two years, since like the opening moves in 1914, the main, for the most part, the main strategy for the German army in the West was to uh, defend and hold off enemy counterattacks. You'll have cases of them going on the offensive, but I think for the most part, we can say that they were told to hunker in while high command deals with the Russian Empire in the Eastern Front. And if anyone listened to my uh, first podcast on the revolution, I talked a little bit about Russia's involvement in the First World War and how this is all interconnected. So they go through their the dugouts, German dugouts, try to find a way through the uh, through their trenches. They stumble across uh, bunk beds where some companies would sleep. Stumble across food. I did appreciate the uh, on the boards. Yeah, the German soldiers carving the names of their loved ones, just yeah. personal touches. It's like one guy left his photo behind of his uh, his wife or something, his his baby. Yeah, it does show that the Germans are people too. Yeah, even though in this movie technically they're the bad guys for the British protagonist. Kind of the same with like Saving Private Ryan though, where like we dehumanize one of the German soldiers, but then like the rest of the time they like the enemy. For the most part. Anyway, as they progress, there's a booby trap set that cooks off in one of these bunkers. Schofield, the older soldier, is blinded by the... um like his eyes or something. in his eyes and up to Blake to lead him out of the trenches before the whole thing collapses. And they manage to make it out of the bunker into the rare areas where the Germans had their artillery. Mm-hmm. And you will see kind of a contrast from the mud and hell of no man's land as they go a bit further back... In the rare areas to the more picturesque more serene fields of trees it's a little surreal flowers. it's like like right next to the trenches like death doesn't destruction it's peace and, and tranquillity now while we talk about Blake and Schofield I'd like to mention that Blake is the younger of the soldiers yeah he's more upbeat kind of more of a hothead he wants to keep going keep pushing he wants he wants to, to get the medal. Yes, they do talk about Blake, you know, telling Schofield, like, hey, you got a medal from the Somme. What happened to it? And Schofield tells him, Oh, I for a bottle of French wine. Like, the medals don't really mean anything because, you know, your family might not see you. Yeah. So they do touch upon that. Schofield is the older veteran. He has seen combat. He has been at the Somme, which we'll explain later what the Somme is. But he has seen the horror of war. And he's not as upbeat. He's more cautious, more... He's not not gung-ho. He's been the guy that, like, look... I know what your rookies do. You want to go in death and glory. About five minutes later, you're a shod crying for your mom and a medic. Yeah, but there's like a dynamic that they play off as. Yeah. Anyway, as they move forward, they, they come to an abandoned... farmhouse. farmhouse. They spend a few minutes looking around, trying to see anything they eat. at the cow there, trying to get some milk out of it. Schofield milks the cow. And they see an air battle. There's like two British planes versus a German scout plane. And I really couldn't give... I couldn't see... Like, in detail, what kind of planes they are, and uh, I'm not, i do not like the air, the the yeah. airplane, the air war. I'm not entirely. I'm gonna stay stuck with Camel. That was a pretty yeah. common British aircraft. So yeah, it was not the Red Bear. They were not, fi- they were not finding the Red Baron. Anyway, this German plane crashes, almost kills Scopio and Blake. Mm-hmm. Pilot's still alive. He's on fire. They help put him out. Blake and Scopio pull him out. Schofield wants to put the German out of his misery because he's injured. Blake and, wants to save him. Blake wants, to, Blake wants to save him. So Blake tells Schofield to get yeah. some water from the spigot. He does so, but in the meantime, the German, either under shock or desire to kill the enemy, pulls out a knife, stabs Blake, forcing Schofield to shoot the German. Yes, and Schofield's bleeding out. No, sorry, Blake's bleeding out. is trying to patch up the wound, or then he starts trying to carry him to, like, the next aid station. But it, Blake is too far guys. He's morally wounded. Yeah. So it's a touching scene. Blake gives the orders and tells Schofield where to find the second damage and then he dies. And there's a moment or two where Schofield is like, a loss because you know, that's his best friend. Mm-hmm. Just lost him. And after a moment or two, he's met by a few British soldiers, including a British captain who's played by Mark Strong. Mark Strong, he's, just, uh, uh, he's only got a few scenes, but I thought he played that match for Lee. It was like, Mark, you, want, you got like maybe 10 minutes of screen time, so make it count. And I thought he did a great job. I mean, they count. And after a few minutes He he tells the cap he tells uh Marsh Run's character, the captain, like, My mission is to stop the second just from attacking. So he goes, Alright, hop around, hop around with us, we'll take you part of the way there. Yeah, there's a few trucks and I think a uh, lorry or uh Uh Lori's with the trucks. You got like the the staff cars, you got you like, the staff car you do have a bit of like the, the, the stuffy British general, like the Ryan crowd, oh clear the road, la la la, move forward. Kinda like in his own little world, like, all right. A little bit. Yeah. A little bit of the blue blood going on. A little bit of that uh, black adder going on from the 80s. <laughs> oh, he's right! <laughs> but the lorries and the South proceeds. seeds. Scofield's a little bit of a shock. You see, yeah, he's got. He doesn't say a lot there in, in the scene. You, 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 mostly you catch the what the other soldiers are talking about. And it's typical, like, you know, soldier military stuff. Bitch, bitching about. <laughs> Like the, like the conditions about the idiot, idiot officers uh, talking about basically like, why are we in France? We should just get the hell out of here. Yeah, but I thought that was my favorite scene too. And you can, we can talk more about this later in the history behind it. But how it, it shows, uh, it just shows more than just like the, the British soldier because you got, you got, you got a, you got the Cockney from it, London. Yep, you got a, a Irish man. I think I will call him Pat, Patty for sure. You actually have a couple of um, uh, Sikh soldiers, Sikh Indian Indian soldiers in in the same. Caravan and uh, they get like the like the whole camaraderie going on and making fun of each other supporting each other and everything and Yeah, they also they also come around and uh, realize Schofield's in pain and try to help him out best they can so their car gets you know The Lord gets stuck in the mud because it's the Western Front is mud everywhere. My mud, mud would never leaves you and You know Schofield's trying to push the car. He's really adamant. So everybody else goes. All right Let's give this guy a hand and they do it and he's talking about you know I gotta I gotta prevent this for my my buddy I gotta stop, help save his brother, so uh, what was it? They gave him a couple of cigarettes. They gave him cigarettes and some wine. Whiskey? Uh, I think uh, Patty gave him a couple of drinks of the whiskey. Yeah, um, what the, what the, I forget the the sepoys name. The the, the Sikh soldier. He gave him something. He's he uh, gave him something or like skull to him. Says good luck, and uh, the sepoy goes, "You got need more luck than we're we're going? It's a little dangerous." Anyway, this scene continues for, what, 10, 12 minutes? About 10 minutes. Then the lorries stop. The bridges to get to the village that Schofield needs to get to is out. Do you remember the name of that village? It's like or- Orist or something. I can't remember. It's based off a real village, correct? It's an actual village, and I can look it up when we talk about the history behind it. But anyway, the lorries have to go around, but Schofield doesn't have the time. He's got to get to the second dinner just before, like, the ne- the next morning. Mm-hmm. So they break off. He goes by foot. There is this scene. He's trying to cross a broken bridge. And he gets shot at by a German sniper. Like the worst sniper in the German army. <laughs> yeah, so this sniper is, like, fairly close for, like, within rifle range. And he and misses most of his, well, all of his shots. Yeah. I Yeah, I'm going to ask Parfid for a second. Okay, I think part of that's Hollywood history. I'm thinking part of it is maybe he's a he's a conscript new and has no idea what he's doing. <laughs> well, it's 1917, so the Germans are probably swimming bomb the bottom of the barrel. Yeah, they've already, like, called the, like, the, first, like, the class of 1918, 1919 to, yeah, to sign up. Yeah, because they're going to start running on men sooner or yeah. later. And this was a contest between Schofield and the sniper. Schofield sings up behind the sniper. He actually, he wounds the sniper first when he gets into the... Yeah. Goes into the house, opens the door. There's Mexican standoff. Both guys fire at the same time. Yeah. Schofield gets the killing blow in, but then he gets like what? Hit? He gets hit in the head. His bull- the bullet grazes his helmet. He gets mm-hmm. knocked out. And then like the-, the scene drops and cuts to nightfall when he wakes up. In this yeah. town that's now looks be on fire. Yeah, then it's on fire. You got like the shell bursting everywhere. Then you got he's, he's sort of. Uh, I thought to me it looked like a symbolism of hell, like everything's destroyed. There's no one around. Everything's on fire. It's It's dark. It's eerie. He sees like a lone figure across the town square, and he thinks maybe it's a friendly. And then this guy starts running towards him and starts shooting at him. So they're oh shit, it's a German. So. He has to run. He has to duck inside a house, and in this house, as he's moving through the basement, he does encounter a young French woman. Now, the first first the French woman's scared, telling the soldier, telling Schofield, "Please, I have no food. I got nothing for you to take." Which yeah. that does happen in warfare, especially in World War One. Yeah, usually in occupied territories, there is kind of sometimes called foraging. Yeah, I'm going back to Civil War history, like air you know, quote foraging. Foraging, it's kind of stealing. Just it's a nicer term. Right, which we will talk about the history behind the movie, and I'm sure we will uh, say so many wonderful things about the uh, German occupation of France in World War One. I'm sure the British have their. Dark I'm, spots a, too. I'm a bit of an Anglophile and Francophile. If anyone hasn't noticed yet, so I, I do tend to, you know, side more with like France and England. And my brother is a little more the level-headed. He also says I have a bad tendency of romanticizing in the past. Yes, yeah, it's kind of like a DeMar from Star Trek, Deep Space Nine. Before the character development, of course. Yeah, all your trick is out there. We're going to drop a couple of DS9 quotes on you. So, anyway. He uh, talks to the, the French girl. She has a baby. Not hers. I think she found the baby. I think the parents were dead. He gives the baby some milk that he had had from the cow. He milked the cow earlier. Sings the baby a lullaby, talks to the French girl for a minute, kind of like calms her down. And I wouldn't say it's a romantic feeling, but it's more like um, two souls understanding each other. It's kind of a breather for Schofield. Yes, after that all those. He's been running, fighting, dodging bullets and shell fire Surviving. And surviving. Yeah. So it's, it's a few minutes for Schofield and the audience to take a deep breath mm-hmm. and let everything just like be slow, be calm, mm-hmm. you know, have a light touching moment. But then Scofield does have to head out back into the village because he has to get to the second Devonshire's before the time's up. Yeah. So he's running. He comes across a, a German patrol. Well, not really a patrol. One German is uh, for drinking the confiscated champagne and puking his guts out. Which I think is pretty realistic. It I is mean, realistic. I mean, let's be honest. If I was a conscript then, I was in the in France, and I found some whiskey or alcohol, I'd get roaring drunk too. Well, while his while a drunk German is drinking, his sober buddy sees Schofield and tries to warn his buddies about the Eng, the Englander, but he gets stabbed. Schofield kills him, and then the rest of the Germans hear the scuffle, and the next uh, basically two scene five ten minutes is Schofield yeah. running through the town, dodging bullets, dodging German patrols, jumping off the bridge into the river. Yeah, losing everything, lost his helmet, his weapon, jumped to the river, almost drowned several times. And he comes to a scene where, like, there's kind of a dam that's made of half wood and also half dead French soldiers. Yeah, I think those are dead French soldiers. I when, I when I saw them, they had, like, their dark blue coats on. I'm like, all right, the only people I know who wore dark blue coats in the Western Front were members of the French Army. And, like, this part will creep out the audience because those soldiers have been there for a while. So it's various stages of decomposition. <laughs> yeah, they're bloated. <laughs> And bloated. and and they're white. And I think if TV tropes is correct, that's where Tolkien got the idea. Was it um, the two towers? The two, yeah. The, well, they're marching through like that lake and like the, the dead marshes, marsh, like, yeah. The fires are floating up. Yeah, you forget J.R.R. J. Tolkien was uh, a British officer in the World First World War. He got a lot of his information from that. The whole fellowship with his his buddies. You know, we should see that movie. That was by Tolkien. Had, uh, mm. yeah, yes, we should. Anyway, so. Schofield's kind of a wreck. He gets out. He's like, I just... He's, he's mentally drained. He's physically drained. Like, just kind of stumbling around at this yeah, point. like, he's just done. And he comes across a group of British soldiers. There's one soldier in the middle of this entire company uh singing... I think it was a, a hymn from the Bible. You got me, man. I couldn't tell you off the top of my head. But it's very touching, solemn scene. I, th- I think it's most... I think it's a requiem of like for the families of soldiers who's who don't come back. And maybe in the uh when we talk about this behind, that, I can look it up. But um yeah, it I, I got touched. I thought it was a very very good way to break the ice. Anyway, Schofield is in shock. He just comes stumbles across. A bunch of the Tommies start asking him, like, hey mate, you alright? What's going on? Like, where are you from? He's like, I have to get the second Devonshires." They go, oh, mate, we're the Second Devonshires. You are, yeah, we're Company D. Like, they're about to launch their first wave of attack. We don't, we don't all go over over the top at first. So then, like the next scene you see is Schofield running through a sort of a new makeshift trench that really builds up like the ones you saw in the beginning. It's just enough to like keep the heads down as they stage their attack. Which they, which the the colonel thinks the command always thinks is going to break the German lines, but it's actually going to be uh, a slaughter. Yeah. Did you like it how one, like, by the way, this whole movie is just in one camera camera shot from the person's, from the per, person point of view. Did you like it how they show the staging areas behind the trenches? You got the sergeant starting, all right, get your, get your grenades here. D company go left, A company go right. I did. Did you, did you like the, the shell fire? And then Schoolfield is asking officers, like, where do I find the colonel? He's like, they, they'll get down the line. They come across that one uh, older captain. Yeah, and he, he has shell shock, or what we called PTSD. So he starts breaking down crying. And he can't give the order, and I think a shell fire actually kills him like two seconds after Scofield leaves. Oh, he did? Uh, curse one that explosion took out the captain. Oh, damn. Well, at least he's dead he a soldier. Yeah, about <laughs> that. But anyway, as uh, Schofield like, the trenches are so packed with ready for this first assault that he can't get through. So what he does... And I like this part where, like, that was it left or a captain? Yeah, he's like, bro, what are you doing? No, 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 don't go! Yeah, he goes over the top, and he's running parallel to the trench, just as the first wave of the second defunders is attacking the German lines. So you get this tracking shot of Schofield running as the British soldiers come over the top, and he starts to see men fall by shell fire, machine gun fire, throw this, Schofield runs, makes it towards the trench, back into the trench, and gets to the spot where this colonel is, Colonel McKenzie. Yeah, the command post. And it was played by Benedict Cumberbatch. As we all know, is Sherlock Holmes, or for all of our comic fans out there, Doctor Strange, Doctor Stephen Strange. I was going to say Khan from Star Trek Into Darkness. Meh. <laughs> I enjoyed Ricardo Montalbán and his uh, hamminess. And, but there's a scene where Schofield's bursting into the command post, that, what, the heck worse is, Telling the colonel, like, this is a suicide mission, don't go, I have orders. The colonel's like, who the hell are you? I'm about to launch the attack, get like the get the hell out of here. And Schofield gives him the orders that Blake gave him before he died. Passed by the general in the first scene where they first got this mission. And to Mackenzie's credit, he takes a moment, looks at the photographs, looks at the notes, then orders his men, cancel the attack, and cancel, like, the second wave to stop the attack. Yeah. Did you like it how... Uh, McKenzie does a bit of a rant to about like this doesn't make any sense like they'll tell us just tell us to we'll stop today and tomorrow then <laughs> we'll attack yeah it's like the war is only going to end when war is the last man standing yes then he's very politely says get the fuck out of here private <laughs> <laughs> oh, corporal <laughs> but then he's stopped by another officer saying lad you did you did a great thing thank you I think it was a sergeant sergeant like an old salt yeah it's probably the, start, the company sergeant major battalion sergeant major so at this point Schofield's drained. He asks this officer, like, you know, Where was his hit, Lieutenant Blake? And the guy says, Well, he probably went over the top with his men because he's always with his men. He was in the first wave. So Schofield, like stumbles to the aid station, calling Philip Blake, trying to find this Blake's brother. And at the end, he does find Lieutenant Lieutenant Blake, who is played by Richard Madden. And, and another any another hit from the Game of Thrones fans the. Honorable, uh, Robert, Rob Stark, Rob Stark, which I was kind of thinking like towards the end, like his runner would come up and tell, uh, Lieutenant Blake message from GSQ, all of a sudden stands and goes, the Kaiser, in <laughs> his <laughs> regards. Uh, I did think, uh, Lieutenant Blake played a lot better scene than Rob Stark in the end. Like I love Rob Stark as a character in Game of Thrones up until he uh, had sex with that, with his nurse, with his nurse wife, which then he lost all his intelligence well, when you play up town with Lannister, you do get burned, if you're not careful. Right. Well, we, you know, Game of Thrones, you either win or you die. There's no middle ground. It's kind of like, kind of like World War one You either win or you die. <laughs> A little bit. So, Blake hears the mission. Now he hears, like, his brother was sent to him. It's like, oh, where's my brother? Like, I haven't seen him so long. And uh, has to break the... Schofield breaks the news that Blake died during the mission. And his brother, like, he's trying to keep himself together. But you can tell he's devastated. He thing. is, but you have to hold yourself together in front of the men. That's that. That's what an officer, that's what a British gentleman and an officer of his, his Majesty's army has to do. So, Richard Madden Blake tells Schofield, "Like you did a great thing, thank you. Think of being with him at the end." Thank and Schofield, the mission's over, tells news of Blake's brother. He is emotionally spent. He finds a tree, lays up next to it. Starts the rest. He pulls out his metal tin that he continually looks at throughout the movie. Mm-hmm. The viewer never sees what's in the tin up until the last moment. And what it is is a picture of Schofield's wife and young daughter and a message from the wife that basically says come back. Come back please. And that's the movie ends and there's a little touching scene where Sam Mendez puts on like a post-credit caption. like, his grandfather. Yeah, his grandfather, great-grandfather, like he was in this such and such regiment yeah, in think, the war. I think it might have been the King's Rifles. Yeah, probably the King's Rifles. You know more about the British Armor than I do. Yeah. Makeup. I know a little bit about it, but you know, I'm uh, an expert. And that's how the movie ends. And that's basically the plot. It's it kind of simple, mm-hmm. but it does work. We'll go more into what we liked, what we didn't like from the film. But I think at this point we should segue to the history behind the war or the movie itself. we about World War One. Um, it won't be quite as detailed as, let's say, our Midway podcast because we can't really cover four years of warfare in like one hour. One right? hour, yeah. That's, this, this, this is impossible. So, us, uh, for, an Amer- for a general American audience standpoint, just because I think most of our listeners are from the United States, where should we start with talking about the history behind 1917, World War I? That is a good question. Do you want to start at the beginning where the different alliances, the opening moves of the First World of 1914? I think if you could briefly touch on the alliances, a little bit of the politics. Okay. But it is convoluted. At the end, we will recommend some books for folks to look up for themselves, because there is a lot of like back and forth political wheeling and dealing behind the scenes. We have both of us have read a lot of books on the World well, War One over the years, and we can point out some books we recommend, some books we can tell you to stay away from. uh, If you don't take our word for it, definitely if we give any titles, check out the peer reviews, buy them. If you want like a serious good history book, it has to be peer reviewed by like an educational source, like a professor. By by peer reviewed, we mean like a scholarly work, like from a college professor, my brother's a historian. Yeah. Do not trust the book reviews off Amazon. Yeah, Amazon's a cesspool of people's opinions. (laughs) And you want to talk more about Amazon, don't you? I don't want to talk about Amazon. I loved Amazon, thank God. I, to, like, nope, nope. It was about World War one. We're not going to talk about the the evil octopus that is Amazon. <laughs> it's a new Hydra. Yeah, Yes, it's a new Hydra. Thank you very much for asking, telling me. Okay, so I think to start off, we're going to, to give you a little crash course. And you probably remember a little bit of this from your either world history or general U.S. history class in high school. So, you know, 1914, the Europe, which I want to say. I, I want to say is like the primary region of power in the world this time, just because like every Europe, almost mo- most of the European nations have imperial power in mo- more parts of the world. In a lot of parts of the world, you got the British Empire basically controlling one third of the known landmass. You got the French Empire controlling up towards of a hundred million of its of, of its subjects, and then you got the German Empire, which controls a little sausage shop in Tanganika. The German Empire does start late in the game of the Age of Empires. Was it I think eighteen seventies? In the seventies, because the German Empire, the German Empire that we know in World War One officially didn't exist up until around I want to say 1870, 1871, around the time of the Franco Prussian War. So by the time they're formed, they want to play the Empire game as well. They like take territory and stuff. Like they're late to the game, so they can take some colonies here and there. Yeah, some in Africa. Uh, you got they, a few places in Japan. Japan, right? No, no, China. I'm sorry. Big thing was Sing Tao in China, right? The, that was the port. But yeah, it's like here, there, and everywhere. It's like far flung, and all these nations and empires are kind of like butting heads more than more than once. There's a little bit of, uh, I think, resentment too by the Kaiser, Kaiser Wilhelm, in the zone Dynasty. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I'm not like detailed into the the Kaiser, like the the Second Reich, as they call it, the Second German Empire. It sounds like the Kaiser was like. He was a figurehead, but then a lot of the power was controlled by the uh, Prussian uh, ruling class, the Junkers, because Prussia. What I read was the, the the state of Prussia seemed to be like the state that control had most of the power in uh, Imperial Germany at this time. And if people is listening and think I'm wrong, just you know give me a shout. Say hey, you got this wrong, or whatever about Germany. If you know more about that, please by all means like just let us know in the let us know in the follow up. Anyway, so World War One starts off with you got. I want to say Europe is broken off into two major uh, ruling blocks. If this sounds familiar to anybody who grew up during the cold war, All right, you got the, I uh, say the triple alliance with Germany, Aust- the German empire, the Austro-Hungarian, Hungarian empire, which, you know, Austria, Hungary, Hung- Austria, Hungary, and then uh, those ruling states in the Balkans. And, it's sort of alliance with Italy. It's, it's somewhat somewhat Italy's like, well, we'll support you guys, but we're not going to go to war with you if we don't have to. So they're they're kind of like the, I don't know the, uh, the, the wild card in this one. One of the books I read to get ready for this podcast, the Italians were leaning on the fence, but if great Britain's getting into the war, that means you got to attend with the Royal Navy, the British Navy. Yep. And that's something the Italians don't want Don't want to do. Alright, so that's why I say... Okay, that makes more sense why they stayed neutral. That, yeah, I'll point the book out later. Okay. And then on the other side, you have what's called the um, Entente Cordiale, which I believe I said it, said it correctly. Is it Entente? Entente, yeah. I'm sorry. I, I'm bad. You took French. I didn't. Yeah, I know, but I never practiced French, so I'm a little rusty. Hmm. Entente. So you get, you get the Entente powers of the French Empire under the Third Republic, allied with the... Russia Czar- Russian Tsarist Empire. They both have some a lot of bad blood with Germany. Uh, France, especially, since they lost the provinces of Alsace and Lorraine in the Franco-Prussian War. There's a lot of resentment. And they're also afraid of the Germany becoming the dominant world power. Like, oh, well, I say continental power. Continental power, me. yeah. And then you have sort of Great Britain, like they forced their alliance with Russia and France, but it wasn't like binding in blood. Like we're not going to, you know, jump in immediately. It was like, well, we'll help you guys out, but we're going to like send the sidelines too. And the whole thing with, uh, you know, British political hegemony or its political strategy for the last 200 years was, uh, you know, make sure no one continent of power can challenge it and rise up. To, like they want a balance of power. It's kind of like the balance of the force. For the Star Wars fans out there, a little bit. Yes, the force. You need to balance the force out. Well, uh, who's the light side? Who's the dark side? That's going to depend on. Basically, where, where, where your bias is. Where, yeah, where your biases. You think you'll, you'll figure out my biases very quickly. Uh, so, well, World one War one starts. You got uh, the Archduke to Austria Hungary, France Fernandes getting shot by Galvio Princip, which uh, caused basically a. I'll do a quick crash course, a chain reaction of events. So, you got Austria Hungary. Declaring war against Serbia after Serbia said, we will let you do everything that you want, but you are not going to invade. You're not going to personally get involved in our police investigation with the, with Princep and the black hand, which is the terrorist group Princep was with. So Austria Hungary goes into the war with the notion that Germany's got our back. I've heard a bunch of books, different books on this. So I don't want to take too much time into the, uh, you know, who started what, but it, it, it basically, uh, Basically, like a domino effect, Germany declares war. Russia, Russia, declares war on Serbia. The Tsarist regime, Russia, which is a Slavic nation and has the says it would support Serbia as you know for Serbian for Slavic hegemony, starts mobilizing towards Austria-Hungary. And Germany says, Russia, stop mobilizing, or you will we will declare war on you. They don't, so they declare war on Russia. And then France starts mobilizing against Germany, and then Germany declares war on. France, France, vice versa. So basically all the major powers are, are involved in the war. They're gearing up for war. Yep, everyone's mobilizing. Like, I think war was one of the big diplomatic um, aims, they like rules they used for like the last 20, 30 years. Oh, they get what you want and start a war? Yeah, declare war, like, you know, threaten to go to war with the next person. And Great Britain is on the sidelines at this point. They, uh, like... They're worried, but at this point, they're more worried about what's going on in Ireland. They had a a lot of unrest in Ireland. Yeah, they got the home rule crisis in Ireland, which you got people who support home rule in Ireland want like a limit, like a self-government. Not like a, it wouldn't make it independent, but it would have been on, on the stuff to independence. And then you got the people in Northern Ireland who, the unionists, who don't want that. They don't want, they, they think that they're going to be a Protestant and a Catholic majority nation. So there's, there's like civil war, there's like it was civil war before the actual Irish civil war. And then they got labor strikes. Like what I learned about from Max Hastings catastrophe, in 1914 was the, at, up until like August, a lot of the British press and public were focused. And most of the parliament were focused on the events in Ireland and labor strikes. They don't get involved in the war just yet. They say, all right, we're going to gear up, but we're not going to like officially take sides that changes. Once Germany crosses into Belgium, Belgium had a treaty with... Treaty of London, I want to say 1839. At least, if, 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 if you're right. Around that time. So they had a treaty with London, which guaranteed, like, all right, we don't want uh, hegemony, because of power in Belgium, so we'll protect you if you get invaded. But whether it be France or Germany. And so they tell Germany, like, we'll give you an ultimatum, leave, in, like, 48 hours, or we'll declare war on you. Germany doesn't. England declares war. And, and they that, kind of mobilize, but at this point, the British Army isn't really an army. Uh, Britain, historically, is a naval power. like the, the the Royal Navy, the fleet, that is their main punch. Their army, by comparison, is usually smaller. What they do have in 1914 is what's called the British Expeditionary Force, or the BEF. Um, it has learned from the lessons from the Boer War... Uh, 18, in South Africa South Africa 1880s where the 1890 well yeah those two sorry, those two Boer wars and in both wars the British did get their butts kicked more or less by the by the Boers because mm-hmm. they used outdated tactics outdated equipment mm-hmm. mostly so they learned from those wars and they are a bit better as being riflemen and as that and finding like you know insurrections and in, like their colonies mm-hmm. but this is like the first time that the BF is going to challenge like an actual standing arm mm-hmm. like the German army and it's going to show in a little bit Professionally, they were the best trained soldiers, right? There's just a hundred thousand of them, and Germany at this point It's like two million soldiers, conscripts and regulars coming through the. I was, I don't think it was that high for the initial invasion. Okay. But, German army is very big. I do believe I know the French a little bit, and definitely knows the Belgians. Well, I, I can talk about the Fr- France too, because uh, France had a, um, it had a population shortage at this point. France had a population of like thirty nine million. Germany, I think. Had like seventy million at that point? Germany like one on one, France versus Germany. France is gonna have some issues because they their manpower isn't as great as Germany's. Yeah, that's why uh in France at this point has a conscript army, so they initially had like two year conscripts, they upped it to three year conscription service to, to uh, get, get get more bodies. Get more bodies, yeah, basically, yeah. So we can talk all about like the opening shots in nineteen fourteen on the Western Front. We'll just uh, let's we'll just keep it to the Western Front. So if otherwise, we're gonna get too involved in like the rest of the world. Yeah. So if anybody is interested in the Eastern Front, we can like point books out later. Yeah. If my old history professor from Lyndon Alexander is listening, nothing against you, Alexander. Just we can't cover both fronts at the same time. But on this podcast, the Eastern Front definitely de- deserves its own podcast, which you can do do eventually in the in the future if, we want. Well, if you want. If you if you're not sick of me by then. I'm sick. If you're not, you're better speaker than I am, apparently. But uh, anyway, as Germans, Germans to start their plan, um, a lot of typical common knowledge states that there's this what's called like the Schieflin plan made by the German war chief. Fun, fun. Von chief of war, step out in 1905, 1906. And they kept update updating it every year, and, and like, like there's this plan to always go through Belgium, get behind Paris. Knock out the French arms. One big massive blow. The bulk of the French arms concentrated in Alsace and Lorraine. Yep. Now, I did read a new book about 10 years old or so by a man named Terrence Zuber, a former Army officer, got a PhD in German University. he gone through, like, prominent documents, find stuff uncovered recently that says, like, the whole Schiefflin plan wasn't really an actual plan, more of a concept. Because apparently during the war gaming Schieff- Schiefflin always had more divisions sit set the go than he actually had it was one thing not to about in, but it was one like I think it's a acropocle story like probably did not happen but supposedly when schieflin died in what 1910 1911 1913 1913 his last words were increased some I'm paraphrasing increase the strength of the, the right wing yeah but, but who who heard that I think his last words were ah I'm dying <laughs> yeah I'm, I think my last words are gonna be fuck <laughs> But anyway, the plan is though, because at this point Germany regardless like a head assault against like the French and like the frontiers like Alsace and Lorraine. Yeah, the the French the Franco Franco German border. Yeah, that's gonna like drain their manpower pretty quick. So there is this idea of getting around the main French mm-hmm. army and cutting behind. Germany does have a lot of interior railroads, so they can transfer troops here and yeah. there. Actually, probably most of the railroads in the world were located on the in Western Europe at this point. At least, like the most sophisticated ones. They did, and apparently, the book I read that the uh, the new chief of staff von Molka the younger he was related to von Molka the elder, who was the architect of the uh, of Germany winning against the the French in the Franco-Prussian War. So he's all, I think Malky the Younger is always compared to his his great, his uncle. So he's got a little chip on his shoulders? Yeah, he's got a little chip on his shoulders. Just like a little devil say, yeah, come on, you're better than your uncle. Come on, do it. Come on, don't be be a wimp. So the idea was to like do a blow against France, scheme off balance, transfer troops to the east, and deal with the Russians as they're going to mobilize. But it's not like, it's not quite this one massive get around Paris, take out the entire army because like they don't have the men. So like the whole timetable thing I keep writing about is, is, is BS. Maybe somewhat. Now, he the, Zuber does have his own detractors, but I'll talk more about that later. Okay. Anyway, the battles first kick off in, let's say, August of 1914 in the West, the Western Front. Yes. And I'll turn my brother, I'll turn the Battle of the Frontiers between France and Germany over to... Well, actually, before the, the Frontiers, like, the, the Germans do go through Belgium. They go to the old fortress town of Liège, and they do things like a quick, you know, one done. The Bones are going to surrender, hands up. But the Bones don't. They do fight. It is lopsided because they own the men, the trainer, the manpower, the equipment. But they do hold the Germans up a little bit. They do destroy some of their railroads, some of their bridges. like the So that like that makes it easier for men and material to go across the front lines. That's going to bite the Germans in the butt they, they, as the offensive goes on. They don't stop the German army, but they do slow it down. And I think this is the point where, in the high command, at least Mokely, uh younger, he just start getting a little worried. Like, all right, if this keeps up, we're going to be falling behind time. Everything on the timetable because... The longer it takes them to defeat France and Belgium and possibly England if they get involved, at this, at this point they haven't gotten involved in the in the West, then the more time they're gonna have to worry about the Russians in the uh, East, because the whole idea is well, you know, it's gonna take Russia what thirty days or so to mobilize their entire army. Yeah, Zuber's argued. Zuber actually argued that the Russians could mobilize a quicker, that the army, not as great as Germany, was a lot better than let's say, fighting the Japanese in the Russo-Japanese War. I, I did read a few books on Russia last year and it talked about how after the, like the, the defeat in the Russo-Japanese War they really re- re-upped their game and they probably already did some secret mobilization of a lot of army units before they officially said oh yeah we're mobilizing our army to the rest of the world so it's a little bit of a, a little political but can the Germans prove that? X-Files <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, so I'll, I'll talk about my mind go, go to the frontiers. Yeah, just as one note, as Germans do go into the Belgian territory, there is some atrocities or war crimes that are taken out. Now, this is collectively known as the Rape of Belgium, that is played up by British propaganda. Numbers wise, you know, it wasn't as big as like the propaganda made out to be. About around six thousand civilians are killed by German soldiers, mostly like. And then the friendly fire that the troops, like, oh my god, this is a sniper fire, like, the, something is shooting at us. In the Franco Prussian War, there was a lot of um aggravation, what they called uh Frank T- Tirae's, like the the sharpshooters, like the the guy, the goril- gorillas, basically. So, there was a huge, I want to say almost paranoia in like the German army that the same thing was going to happen. So, be extra, uh, extra alert. But it's one of those things where it's like I called it situational fulfillment. Like, you are so focused on something happening that when maybe a similar event happens, you focus on facts that prove your, your idea of it and you don't uh, include facts that maybe it's not, it's not what happened. Maybe maybe a couple of reserve battalions shot each other by accident because they thought they were the enemy. Unfortunately, to the Germans, these the officers in charge, at least the ones that commit out these uh, crimes. Mm-hmm. It's got to be temper fire, it's got to be the Belgian civilians. You know, we got we, we to show them who's boss, so we got to pay them mm-hmm. back. So, yeah. around 6,000 civilians are killed by these shootings. Again, the scale is not big compared to what the propaganda shows for, like, from the British side. Because, like, this famous war post, I, I remember it in, like, the old history books. Like, the, the German soldier, like, the the typical pickle, like, the pickle helmet. Is the pike helmet, yeah. Uh, carrying, like, dragging the young Belgian girl by the... Um, the hair. By the hair. Yeah, you know, I'm sure it's not that it happened, but to the extent and to the scope, not quite. Uh, actually... I'm a little off topic here, but uh, I read David Reynolds in the Long Shadow uh, last year, and it was about the aftermath of World War One and how the world reacted to it. He did talk a little bit about that because he said the propaganda wise, it made people, it made people in like say the U.S., England, and everything, less susceptible to hearing claims about um, when the Nazis take over in Germany in 1933, and they start talking about like atrocities and all that. They think they're less, they're less inclined. Like no, no, we've already been down. I'm not saying it's like the, the totally why they didn't believe in like the danger of Hitler and everything, but the the, the thought was like no 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 like we, we were lied to once before in the First World War. I'm sure it's the same BS. And until I go, oh, it wasn't BS. It's actually true. Well, shit. Yeah, yeah. You should read uh You should read in the Long Shadow. I got it at home somewhere. Dude, I got I have a thousand books to read. Yeah, no, I got a thousand books too. But uh, uh, anyway. anyway, let's cut back from the Belgian side to the French and the Germans at the frontiers. And right. We'll cut over to Ian. Okay, so the Battle of the Frontiers. Alright, the uh it it's mostly takes place in the heavy woods of uh southern Belgium, northern France, along the Franco uh Franco-Belgi Franco franco german border. The idea was it's called Plan seventeen in the French High Command, and it was the brainchild of I wanna say General Joseph Joff. If he wasn't the brainchild of it, he was the one that perfected it. The whole idea was to have most of the French army and in, quickly invade Alsace, Lorraine, take it back from the Germans, and push into Germany through that way. I've read a lot of books that say it was completely stupid because it didn't take into account the possibility of Germany going through Belgium. I did listen to a lecture last year, and I would have to find the professor who did it, but he mentioned, because he did a whole spiel on Joffre. Joffre. He said in 1913, Joffre went to the French, I believe the Supreme War Council, which would be sort of our, like, joint chief of staff, or chief of staff at the time in America, he wanted to present a plan that says, all right, if we go to war with Germany, can I make a plan that has us go through Belgium and avoid like the most obvious route into Germany? He was told, no, you can't do that. If war breaks out with Germany, we want great Britain on our side. And if we go into Belgium first, that's going to piss off the Brits and they may not want to join up with us. So you need to think of another plan. So this is his plan. It wasn't a complicated, sophisticated plan, but it was a plan. It was pushed right into Germany and, Take back lost the lost territory of Alsace-Lorraine doesn't quite work that way because um, again like you know, Malky was also worried about German territory being lost. So they did have a lot of German divisions in that area. So the best way I can describe it bluntly is it was like a slaughter. Uh, just book a book after I've read this is like the the typical like bayonet charges, infantry assault charges. That everybody knows about like the like the First World War. In France, and you know the French army uniform of the time is a bright red pants, nice bright, like dark, like dark coat. That's for the offensive spirit, correct? Yeah, offensive spirit. Elon, like we're gonna win with Elon, like offensive spirit. And uh, I, I heard people, I heard people say like the red pants give it away. But the same professor, another professor I, I, I listened to in his lecture said like, you uh, read read German accounts and says, well, it wasn't really the red pants that gave it away. It was the sun gleaming off of the bandits a mile away that we saw first before the red pants. So this is like one of the worst months in the war for France. Actually, I think they, they lose more in the first two years of the war than they do in the second, second half. Like in one day alone, I think it was August 22nd. They lose like over 60,000 casualties alone. By the end of 1914, France almost has 1 million casualties killed, dead and wounded in the war already. So this is like the, I don't know if you can really describe it in American terms. I mean, we got, like, the Civil War, but it was like, if... The French lose more soldiers than both Union and Confederate armies in the American Civil War. Yes. All four years of conflict, from yep. 1861 to 1865. And the French lose may let's say, what, the first year? The, the, it's four months, dude. And, like, the first four months, August until December, almost one million casualties. And while this is going on, uh, the French 5th Army commander uh, lands Iraq, He's sending reports back to Joffrey's headquarters saying, like, there are more German troops coming through Belgium. And Joffrey, like, this thing I'll the track Joffrey for him. He doesn't, really, he doesn't really pay attention to these warnings up until the German army is about to outflank, like, the French army. Like, the French 5th army. So, Landjack pulls back. So, at this point, Joffrey pulls his entire, like, f- all the French armies back. I believe there was um, five French armies at this point, major armies. Pulls them back for the, they get outflanked and their flank is turned. So he pulls them back. They lose a lot of territory in the process. It's they call it like the Great Retreat, and it's like hot autumn day in July. No, hot autumn day. Everyone's tired and everything. They pull back. They just keep pulling back and pulling back. It's very demoralizing. More Germans come into France. They take more of the territory, and this is like the a lot of the industrial territory too in uh, in uh, in France too. So this is kind of like a a, this is a big morale blow to the French. French Republic, and, you know, there's talk about evacuating the government from Paris to Bordeaux in the southwestern portion of France. But while this is going on, the BEF is going to make its appearance, and I'm going to turn this over to my brother, because he's studied the BEF in this point that I have. Yeah, so I'm basing my, my stuff off, uh, Terence it a little bit, a little bit of Peter Hart's book called Fire and Movement, very recent, and a book called Mons by, I think, John Tremaine. Now, this is about 1960s, but he was still pretty good. I recommend him too, just to get kind of a crash course. And with B F land on the continent, they move in to support the French. And again, like B F, overall is very limited compared to the German mm-hmm. and the French armies. They don't. I think they have like three cores all together, and only two get sent to the continent because, uh, believe it was the commander, the commander, g- commanding general Sir John French, wasn't that keen of going over in the first place. He didn't want to take the entire B F over to get wiped out. You still were a pessimist to begin with, from what I've read. He wasn't. uh... I wouldn't say he was a go-getter. He wouldn't be someone that inspired you to attack, lead, and succeed. To the American audience, he was no George Patton. No, but George Patton is... I don't know. I like George, but he has some issues. That'll be for another podcast. Anyway, the BEF do march into Belgium. Mm -hmm. They make contact with the Germans at this old mining town called Mons. Now, like, the books, it is, like, kind of like the national history books, but nationalistic. It is kind of built up as this, you know, the brave, well-trained, well-disciplined British soldiers fired their rifles into the masses of the German hordes. The mad minute. They can fire 15, 15 rounds from their Lee infields in just, in just a minute. Trained. Accurate. Every every shot's going to hit. They are good <laughs> riflemen. And, like, this part of this was called the myth. Mm-hmm. That they only are forced by superior numbers, but they inflict like 10,000 casualties on the Germans and delay and hurt the Germans very much. Mm-hmm. Modern scholarship says that that's kind of not quite the case. Now, the riflemen and like the line officers do very well. They do set defensive positions, mm-hmm. they do fire the Germans. The Germans do take losses, especially as one battalion. I think it's the first order under von Kluck that do get hit pretty hard. Mm-hmm. However, it's more of an equal fight. Than the myth makers will like have like, belief. and the British do have their faults. Uh, the proper reconnaissance was, was not done about the area, there were gaps, uh, according to Peter Hart. Like, there were no real plans to boil the bridges going across the canal that kind of cuts around Mons until it's much too late. So, when the Germans do push through, they get most of the bridges, so they're not slowed down that much. <laughs> the British do have artillery, the Royal Field Artillery, or RFA. They don't do so well either. They're all field guns, which means they're right in the front lines with the troops. Yeah, so they're at open sights. And the Germans, they have a bit more indirect fire support. So, well, they- uh, I think a lot of our audience aren't really keen on military to- topics. Can you tell us a little bit about, about indirect fire? What does that mean? Basically do- it means there's usually a guy at the front lines. He sees, like, what the enemy is. There's, like, a, a runner or, like, a telegraph or a, a phone line. Mm-hmm. Goes back to where the guns are behind them. Say, hey, enemy is here. Fire there. It just means like the guns aren't out in the open where they can be hit by machine gun fire or like artillery fire. Right, so th- they're like out of, eye, uh, out of eyesight. Out of eyesight. Out, out of line of sight. So they can't be seen by the enemy like unless they fly planes overhead. Right. Uh, the ground field really does get shot quite a bit. Their guns, Mons, isn't a great place to put their guns up so they can't really fire too well to the Germans. Mm-hmm. Overall, it seems like a day of action. The Germans are held up a little bit but it's of like, the big blocks of masses that is usually put in, like, national histories or, like, you know, kind of accounts. But I get it. Like, when a soldier raises the accounts back home, they're under a lot of stress. So they're not going to take the time to, like, oof. Germans are spurring out making, fl- making flanking. So, like, skirmishing, they're going to say, holy crap, there's the Germans. I got to open fire. Right. So, like, memory and, like, stress does play a bit factor in the accounts. So, one of your classes, though, are talking about his- historical memory. Like, how people remember things differently. Yeah, dude, memory is... Subjective. I mean, hell, I probably, if it was yesterday, I would probably be wrong. Someone's not memory at all. That's why you drink. Thank you. (laughs) Anyway, the British do have to fall fall back. Now, there's like two corps commanders. Uh, Second corps is under a guy named Smith Dorian. You like Smith Dorian? Yeah, I like Smith Dorian. (laughs) He he falls back. His corps takes the most brunt at Mons. About 1,700 British casualties versus like 2,000 German casualties for the modern scholarship. The corps to his right, the 1st Corps under Douglas Haig, he'll, be, he'll um, be important later. Haig, at this point, he kind of has like the, I don't know, 1,000-yard stare. He doesn't do so well. He has sort of a breakdown. He, he didn't conduct himself as properly as he should have. Yeah, so the two corps aren't really coordinated as they fall back. Now, to the right of the BEF is the French 5th Army under Lanzarac that Ian mentioned earlier. They're falling back as well, so there's no cooperation. French hated Lanzarac. Lanzarac hated French. Typical, you know, he's French. I don't like him. Because I'm English. He's English. I don't like him. Because I'm French. They're not talking. They're not coordinating. And there's a lot of that. There's a lot of bad blood with that. And that's gonna bite me in the ass as they have the retreat. Yes. Like there's no really no coordination. Yeah. It's, it's supposed to like come. It's supposed to be like a swinging door, like all, all together. Yeah. It's, it's kind of haphazard. But the B F do fall back. Mm-hmm. They're part of the great retreat as well. A couple of days later in the retreat, uh, Smith Dorn decides. You know, the Br- the Germans are right on our heels. If I, my men are tired, if I don't stand in fights, I'm going to get run down by the Germans. Mm-hmm. They make a stand in this place called Lee Cateau, and the British take the worst of the punishment. The Germans mm-hmm. suffer losses, but the British have around seven to 8,000 casualties. Mm-hmm. At this point, though, Tremaine or some of the sources state that it gave the British enough opportunity to like, fall back more, because they get, they blow the Germans mm-hmm. enough. Zuber goes on the account that the commanding officer of the 1st German Army, von Kluck, that they're fighting the British... He makes an error and thinks the BF's going one direction. We're actually going in a different direction. I see. So by the time he figures out what's happening, the British have enough of a breathing space. But they fall back as well. And the, they do fall back with the French along the Marne River, I believe. And that's where like, the first battle of the of the Marne comes in by September of 1914. Yeah, so I'll, I'll take over here. So at this point, Joff is the believes that we need to counterattack. We, keep, we can't keep retreating. We do we give up Paris and we give up the most important parts of uh of our France, so he believes the best point of a counterattack is at the Barn River. I believe it's when the German first and second army started splitting apart. I think uh von Kluck had the first army right yeah now the Germans do make their mistakes like the armies do kind of split up, yeah uh, they they come more invested on going a bit further left, yeah, I think like uh von Kluck was going, I think because like chasing after the British and everything on of Belgians and the right side and then Romvilla was going more to the left so there was a gap opening up between the two armies. Javier's like alright this is a perfect opportunity to uh, attack the Germans. Now I'm gonna give Javier a lot of credit here. The last like I don't know, three four weeks yet he, he doesn't really blame himself for the Battle of the Frontiers. He blames everybody else but himself so he, he's got that against him. To his credit though he's going around two divisions talking to every commander Making sure that the troops know what they're doing, he's out there in the fe- he's in a field. He's actually got this former race car driver as his personal sh- chauffeur, going like what 40, 50 miles an hour. How fast you can go at the time in a, a typical car, and he does sack a lot of commanders who he believes do not have it. Have the guts. Have the guts, or at least have like the I thought like the the, the, the brain know, Like all right, like this is a fast changing war, so either like get it, like either shape get shaped, or get the get the heck out of here. It's like. Does I think almost a couple hundred commanders, corps commanders, army commanders, lines gets replaced in fifth army. Uh, yeah, he they just he just sacks them. And while he's doing this, he's taking division special reserve divisions and taking divisions out of other armies and creating a new sixth army, which is going to be right in the center of where he wants to attack the uh, the Marne and uh, the German army in the Marne. He also. But he also needs the British Army, to British BA, have to stop retreating and start attacking with the rest. Otherwise, there's going to be a gap opened up in their lines. At this point, French is adamant he's going to take his soldiers back to uh, the French ports and go back to England. He doesn't, want, he doesn't want any more of this. And who does he get a visit from? He gets a visit by Herbert Kitchener. Now, Herbert Kitchener is a, I want to say, a idol a figurehead in the British Army and British public at this time. Uh, I can probably put up something on our on our podcast four four page, but he's got the he's been a general for like the last thirty years. He was the commander of the British force in Egypt during the uh Battle of Omar Duran where they take over the the Khadiv uh you know Islam Islamic extremist I wanna say proto Islamic extremist. I don't like putting modern day labels on past events because those two normally those two events aren't, aren't alike. See, see, thank you. And um, he's got a lot of clout in like the in the government and people want him to be the next secretary of war. And I believe at this point he might have already been the secretary of war. He was like what, six foot two? Yeah, dude, he was like the he was like the stereotypical uh you know, British imperialist. He had the mustache, he had the height, he had the persona, the charisma, the persona was forceful. Uh his face is gonna be used in all the recruitment posters that you see, like Britain's go serving country. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's not really known for being a mediator or a negotiator or beats his way of the highway uh, yeah so he's got problems being the secretary of war because he uh, you know as a politician you kind of need to like give and take and for him it's all like take don't give like I'm not giving you everyth- anything anyway he goes over there and he's talking to Joffrey Joffrey's like I need the have to f- fight he's with Joffrey he's with John French Joffrey's like we want to counterattack, attack but I need your troops to fight with us because I don't want a gap in the field French is like, no, all is lost. I'm going to take my the time I back. And this is where it gets, history gets a little, uh, gets a little uh, diluted because kitchener takes French to uh, a different room in this headquarters. I don't, there might've been an interpreter with like, uh, nothing was written down on record, but like a few minutes, like I don't know, 10, 15 minutes later, they both come back out and French says, we will support you in the field. I got the feeling that Kitchener took French by the scruff of his uh, collar and says, Get your blankety blank act together, you blankety blank. <laughs> yeah, I think we, you know, it's like the guy you got like, to shape, shape up by slipping around a few times, which uh, I think now in the army, officially, it could be a shock complaint. or like like, uh, mm. I don't know, we're, we're not soldiers. We're not soldiers. Maybe, we'll, maybe we talk to some of our army buddies and say, like, Do they still do that? They'll probably say, Oh, yeah, just, you know, behind closed doors and no one can see. So BAF goes back into the fight. Slowly though. It's like um Chris, it's like what I wear was like French is having his troops advance like a mile or two miles a day while everyone else is fighting their guts out. So this is the Battle of the Marne and the German army is is, you know, on its last legs too. Like their supply lines are stretched, their troops are tired. Yes, remember I mentioned how the Belgians kind of destroyed their own like logistics, mm-hmm. railways, and bridges. That's gonna buy the Germans in the at this point, because now the further they advance the fair, like their home base, all supplies, all, all the reinforcements, they gotta go through all this crap, march mm-hmm. to the front lines, and they can't fix the bridges or the railroads as fast as they want, as they need to. Mm-hmm. And at this point, von Mocha, he's already kind of a little stressful man. He he starts to kind of a nervous breakdown at this point. He's not really in the front lines, so he's, he's back at four hundred miles in Luxembourg. Yeah, so he's kind of in his office, like his headquarters. I, I like to contrast like him and Joffre. Yes, Joffre's like, like what three hundred pounds, Joffre on the staff car. Like now, he, he was a big boy. <laughs> He never missed a meal. He never missed a meal, no. <laughs> he did not miss a meal. He didn't miss <laughs> dessert. But uh, Sharper's like going around, going to his units, like at the front lines. Momoka's in the back. He's like trying to like, get information. But mm-hmm. like I, we said earlier, like phone lines are getting cut. Like it takes time to learn look, what's going on. Yeah. It's like just for the age of uh, smartphones. Computers, uh, uh, Maps. Yeah. So, like rare got maps and all that mm-hmm. stuff. So Sharper, uh, M- is starting to have a breakdown. I think it's by end of September. By the end of September, he, he's cashiered out of the uh, army. Yeah, he's got out of the army because he he he's, he's can't handle the pressure. He can't handle it. He can't handle it. He had too many nervous breakdowns. Yes, so uh, anyway, the Germans are stopped at the Marne. They ret- they start retreating back, and they go back to the Iron River, which is a good defensive barrier, and they start digging in. This is like where we get like the beginning of the trench warfare, and the trench warfare was never meant to be permanent. It was meant to be we're just gonna stop our gains, and go back to the offensive somewhere, so. By this point, all armies are shot. Like the the French army is almost is spent, and they start advancing towards um, the Germans. But the Germans got the they pick the high ground, so this is where you start getting like the initial bloody assaults on the tre- on, like the trenches. So this was what's called the race to the sea. Yeah, this is where the uh, German army and the French, British, and Belgians try to outflank each other while they're going up the, the Belgian coast to the, uh, up the North Sea. Yeah, don't they basically around at the same time. And that's where we get like the first battle of Ypres. Yeah, pretty much. There's there's no like no real winner. Like no one could actually like get like get the edge on. And this is the first battle of Ypres, which is a town in Belgium. And why is Ypres important? Ypres is important because it does keep the Germans from cracking through the front the, the the Entente lines. Unfortunately, the BEF takes severe casualties, and like I mentioned earlier, it's a small force.
1: Mm-hmm. So
0: some historians do call like the death of the army because BEF. We molded into the British Army so the the British forces of 1914 are going to be a lot different than 1917 mm-hmm. so gone are the days of like the, the volunteers the uh like the, what they call like the, the contemptibles or the contemptibles like the regular the, reg- regular, the prefer- regular, regular army the professionals like you' gonna get a lot more guys being volunteered just to like go on the front lines and, and serve these are, the regulars are the guys spend 10 20 25 years in the in the army these are the guys that made the army their life their profession. It's not like the vol. It's not like the volunteers i I you, for American arms we'd see in World War Two, where they fight for the duration of the war, and they go back to civilian jobs. Yeah, the, the, to them, the army was the army was life. I did really, a lot of them were reservists though, so they were called up like, hey, you know, we, we're going to France. It's so like national guard, <sighs> or, or like the army reserve for the U.S. standards. Sort of. I, it, it's weird because uh, the British army is broken is a bit differently than uh, the American army. I don't think the U.S. had a reserve until 1917 when we started. Uh, we started, like, yearning up for war. Well, the American Army is very small in 1914, like... Yeah. Very small, but... Anyway, the first Jeep is probably one of the one of the bloodiest in, in British history in the beginning. In, first of all, at, at this point... At this point, it's very bloody for the British. It's worse than Mons and Lakato. Worse is to come, though. 1914 does end. In December of that year, there's kind of the Christmas truce on the lines, which there are some books out there to, to read. It's not quite now everybody holds hands and, like, plays football or soccer for American audiences, but I, I, I want to say it was more so between British and German soldiers. I am not entirely sure if a lot of French soldiers, you don't princes... think the French would like want to shake hands with the Germans. <sighs> uh, I've read a few things and, uh, what was it sort of was like, I don't know. Did you get like that, the, the Christmas truce movie, you know, I never saw it. Uh, it was good. It was touching. It was like the, these three, these three sections. Like they were all singing Christmas carols and all that. I, I don't know. Like, Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I gotta read more into this. But to me, like the, you want to take a French soldier who maybe he, his home just got taken over by the Germans, and the Germans want him to have a Christmas truce. He's like, for "F <laughs> you! Like give my home back." I could be wrong, hmm. but anyway, so 1914 ends and we go into 1915. How do you want to break this up? Do you want to go up to 1917 and go with that, or do you want to cover the entire war? Do you just want to do like a quick review of 1915? Kind of proof of I mean, yeah. for the most part, the battle lines of the Western Front are gonna be staying the same, mostly, right? Pretty static, yeah. I mean, you have a couple of gains here and there. I, I want to say this is uh, for this other French army. This is where they start like there's a, a few a bunch of offensive where they try to like pound. For, this is this is where generals try, try to get the idea of all right, if we fire like a bunch of artillery shells and charge in, we can break through the lines. This goes both ways, by the way. This is not this is not a just a, a Related to the uh, British and French generals, there's a big. I think it's a big stereotype that they were all stuck in the chateau having champagne while their troops were on the front lines. This is modern war. This is uh like they need to be behind the lines to get all the information and make the right decisions. Like Wonder, I love Wonder Woman. It was a great DC movie. It was a great comic movie. Like in nothing against like Dian- the character of Diana. I mean, when she's talking to Douglas Haig, who's like you should be in the front lines, of the trenches. She has no right concept of modern warfare. These guys didn't know count to the of Warfare. They learned from, learn from scratch. Like, all their military training in the past... The, the, the it, it's out the work, window, yeah. They, they got to learn from the from, from the ground up. Yeah, like... Some the, learn faster than others. Some don't learn at all and just, you know, they get it out. Yeah. Uh, I think I'll just focus mostly on, like, the, the French offensives. You got the offensives in the Champagne region, the Artois region. I think a lot of it was to try to punch at the front lines. And you're... The first year and a half of this, you're going to see a typical pattern. Like, you may take the first few lines of trenches of the enemy and, you know, take up positions. But because you need more men, like, your attack force is spent and you need more men. But it's very hard to get more men up while you've got artillery shell enemy firing down on you. And so those attacking troops are cut off and they're a critical overrun. So any gains you make are going to be lost. And so it's going to to take a a while for... Kind of a seesaw back and forth. Yeah. William Philpotts, who wrote uh, the I think "War of Attrition" and "Bloody Victory" about the Psalm. I like him. He's a good author. He won a few awards for his books. You should really read them if you if you enjoy um, World War One history. He talks about um, it's paraphrasing. It's sort of basically a learning curve. It's like, all right, this plan didn't work. Let's try the next. And I think where uh, people get very, um, I do not say offended, but like a gas about this is like, well. Every trial and error you use, it, uh, it, 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 we're talking about like tens of thousands of people then dying. It's like, well, it's sad, but it's also a total war. Like the nations went to war. So someone has to pay the price. Yeah. uh, Richard Faulkner, I think Scott Stevenson, I was listening to one of their lectures in the world war one playlist off YouTube. Uh, they made this place about the opening months of the, of the war. And like some, like the, one of the questions was, you know, what, 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 why end the war then? And like kind of hard to answer it, but like a big thing was you gotta tell the public, hey, gee, sorry, we messed up. We lost hundred thousand guy of your, like your brothers, your 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 husbands, uh, your sons. But guys- hey, but hey, better like next time, right? Yeah. Like there's a point where the, the war has to be going. They have to have total victory to justify like all these losses. Actually, I think that's why a bunch by the Allies would get gonna like, get angry with uh President Woodrow Wilson later later because he starts talking about like peace without victory in his like spiel. And they gonna say nah. That, f that yeah, it, the more I read, him, like yeah, uh, Wilson's kind of a dick. <laughs> like it was like his way or the highway. We can talk more about 1915, 1918. All right, sorry. So yeah, so 1915, you know, you gotta see the French try to break the German lines unsuccessfully. The British are gonna make a few. I want to say limit in terms of like their French allies. They're very small because the B the, the British army is still very small. They're building up. Yeah, but they get more volunteers from from uh. Yeah, as well. 1916 they had like like one of the last guys to make conscription at the thing. Yeah, all right. So I'll I'll, I'll quickly break down the – just because the movie was about the British soldier, I'm going to break down the uh, British Army of uh, World War One. So you have the all Temple, as Austin said. You got the regular units with territorial divisions. Now the territorials are what we would call the Army Reserve in America. They were initially, I think, 1906, 1907 in order to build up the British Army. There's not a lot of them. Like, they, they'll come in trips and drabs and start, like, filling in the front lines as the regular units are, like, wiped out. Then you got the new model army, which I would call Kitchener's Army, the Pals Battalions. These are the immediate volunteers that Kitchener asked for. He asked, for like, a million volunteers to to create his army. So these are, like, the guys that – and the way it's broken up, they're called pal Battalions which means like whole neighborhoods or residencies can all sign up together. So go to war with your buddy. Yeah, so you don't feel like you don't feel like lonely. Like lonely cuz you know like you'd rather fight with your best friend, your best your neighbor than some random stranger you never met before. It's like for the American audience the American Civil War where you would have regiments formed from towns, local townships or counties. Yeah. Where everybody kind of knew everyone, which you know could be good for morale because, you know, you with your father, your brother, your your best friend. But it's going to be a problem when stuff hits the fan. It Especially if that unit is in a particular bad fight and you lose half the guys. Well, congratulations. That that town just lost half its, uh, half you know, its population. Man, yeah, population. Yeah. So you got that. And then it's going to break. Okay, you got the reservist new... um You Model Army, the volunteers. And then late 1916, 1917, you're going to start getting the conscription. Uh, Great Britain is the last, I think, major power to conscript its forces in the war. conscription was never a thing in England. They have a, like us, they have a large fear of a large standing army. I think that goes back to the days of Cromwell, the Lord Protector, (coughs) dictator, sorry, Cromwell son of a bitch, (laughs) burned down down my Irish, you burned down my (laughs) Irish (laughs) ancestral home. Didn't he get his head chopped off? No, he died. No, he died, old man. Oh. You think of, now you think of Charles, the other kind guy's head chopped off. Well, there's a lot of head, ch- head chops Yeah. Stuff, I, I forget. I but digress. Anyway, so we got about 1915. Now, yep. I was going to take one step back to talk a bit about the Naval War. Yeah, one, of the, One of the big things working against the Germans during this whole war is the naval blockade that the Royal Navy puts upon the Germans. The Germany does have a fleet. Caswell II did try to build it up at prior. That is one of the reasons why the Brits don't like the Germans that much, because, you know, why are you this giant fleet unless you're trying to oppose us? Right. World power, so they build their own fleet in response. Now, the German high seas fleet is very powerful, but is outnumbered by the British. Yes. And throughout the entire war, they will try to break the British naval black kid by defeating the fleet. You've got like, these auxiliary ships, cruisers, light cruisers, destroyers... They're intercepting any ships going to Germany with foodstuff. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of the German trade depends on overseas, on overseas shipping. And that's not going to hurt the Germans that much in the beginning, because everyone thought it was going to be a short war. But as the war progresses, as it's really going end in sight, that's going to affect them in the long run. Actually, I, what I read was the the first half of the War of the World Navy was like sort of lackluster in its blockade. And it's only, I think, in 1916 they get super serious and really start like limiting... What can come in through the blockade? Anything that they considered was going to be helping the German war effort, including food, food from like you know going through Holland to Germany. It's like nope, can't you can't have it. That's when you start getting like the turnip war. You start getting the turnip winter, the turnip winter. Yeah, you start getting the turnip winter. The um, like the, the food shortages. Which actually I enjoyed that when they were going in the movie when they're going through the dugout. Yeah, and uh the, the cans of food and it was like horse and dog meat. I'm like. <laughs> That, that's not a, that's not for their animals, it's probably for them, because they ran out of, like, cattle. <laughs> but, um, German fleet does fight the British in 1914 a little bit. Mm-hmm. There's the first thing about a thing called Helgoland Blight. Mm-hmm. Germans mm-hmm. lose that one. There's, like, three cruisers against, against the British. Yep. Out in the Far East, you've got these British cru- German cruisers who have been cut off from their home base, they try to make their way back home to Germany, led by mm-hmm. this arrow named Maximilian von Spey. Von Bay does destroy two British armored cruisers. They're eh, old, old ships led by like green hands reservists at the Battle of Cornell. It's mm-hmm. Chile, Chile uh, November, 1914, they do sink two ships, all hands lost. It's a victory for the Germans. It does take a kind of bit below for the morale for the British. Cause up until that point, since Trafalgar, they like the sea uh, power, no defeats right. against them. But then December, von Spee got his squadron destroyed off the Falklands because they bursted into two big battle cruisers, uh, basically bigger, faster ships than mm-hmm. von Spee had, and basically ran down the Germans in St. Most of them, except for one, which escaped for like three weeks, and they got sunk mm-hmm. later. Would you say like most of the naval battles up until 1916, at Jutland, are like they're small in compared to like you know? The thing people think on the naval battles is like hundreds of ships fighting each other. Yeah, basically, for 1914 to 1915, it's like small naval engagement, like maybe a handful of ships on each side. Right. Uh, still very terrible, but guys still so like, we're not thinking like the giant battles like most people think of, German, which comes in 1916. Right. But uh, there's one cruiser called the Emden, does the kind of raiding. It actually, got a pretty cool history. If mm-hmm. anybody interested in Emden, look it up. But eventually, it does get sunk by an Australian light cruiser, the Sydney. But anyway, 1914. Germany has a service fleet, but it's doesn't have the same power as the Royal fleet. What they do mm-hmm. have are submarines. Now, initially, submarines of the U-boats don't have the same hitting power. It takes a while for the Germans to, like, use them effectively, mm-hmm. but they do sink some ship warships in 1914. The uh, Pathfinder, the U.S. after the war, these three old armored cruisers, the Albuquerque, the Cressy, and the Hogue. Quote unquote, they were called My the Lock-in Squadron. Lock-in squadron. Yeah, just like the, the Brits kind of like threw everything they had at the Germans. Whether which... or not it was a good, whether or not it actually worked. Yeah, like those ships are right. those sh- <laughs> they're, they're <useless. laughs> just say important. Right, they were useless in a standard fight. But in 1915, the Germans, in order to try to break, break, break the blockade, kind of like also start the Brits in submission because they're an island nation that they need food and supplies from overseas. Mm-hmm. They do what's called unrestricted submarine warfare. Quote unquote. Anything around the aisles is kind of fair game. And that works up until they sink the line at Lusitania. May 7th, 1915. Kill about 1,400 or so. 1,200. 1,200 passengers tick. and crew. 120 are Americans, which is going to piss off the U.S. a lot, but won't lead to war eventually. And there's kind of a blowback while like the German Admiralty posted, like the Kaiser Skirm posted warning. Don't go to the United Kingdom at your own risk. Come on, man. Nobody was newspapers. even say nobody was in the newspaper. <laughs> yeah, well, there's like a political back and forth, which I recommend either Eric Larson's book in Lusitania Dead or Dian- Diana Preston's. Uh, Lusitania Epic Tragedy. I've read both of them. Diana Preston does go more into like the, uh, like not justification of single Lusitania. She makes the point of, like, I, th- I think they, they actually, they got to like, the whole thing with Lusitania was that the argument was, well, she was carrying munitions. According to her, and according to what I've read online, well, online. <laughs> uh, Small arms, right? From Bridgeport? Smalls from Bridgeport, which technically, did, as long as they weren't explosive, did not violate neutrality law. Yeah, so the British government does play a little close to the, to the rules. Close they to they the rules, will bend yeah. the rules to get what they yeah. want. Just made the case that it would take Lusitania like 8 to 10 trips to fill the hold of one merchant, merchant ship. Anyway, so we don't go. We we're threatening, but Wilson keeps us out of the war until nineteen seventeen. The Germans do, however, hold back their submarine war for their surety kind. Yeah, they they don't want us involved in the war. They like if because they like, they're facing the Russians, facing the French and the British. They don't want the Americans to like go after them either. Right. So it it goes back to um, you know they don't take as many ships. But they don't piss off any, any any uh any outside powers. Yeah. Now there was the fighting in 1915 in the Dardanelles and um, Gallipoli. I don't think we've we'll time to cover that. I think this will transition into 1916. I do want to mention briefly that there was a plan in place through Joffre uh, meeting with the uh, major powers in Chantilly, France, in early 1916. At this point, Douglas Haig, who was the fir- first arm first corps commander, first corps. First Corps, he got promoted. I forget which. He eventually gets promoted to army commander. I forget which army it is. It might be the first army, or second army, of the British, of the expanded British army. He eventually gets uh, in, overall command. Overall command of the, of the BEF in France. Um, he did a little bit of um, backstabbing by um, John French. He came kind of up behind French's back and says, "Yeah, French is not doing so good. I can probably do a better job than he does." Does A little bit of that, but you know, yeah, it's, essential. it's about the sense of life. <laughs>
1: He's infantry, though.
0: He's infantry. (laughs) He's cavalry. He's the cavalry, man. Okay. Anyway, so Geoffrey has a plan. Like, talking to the major major, um, commanders of uh, Russia, England, and France. It's like, all right, this year, like, we got Italy involved with us. So, what we need to do is we need to hammer away at all sides around the same time. Germany and Austria-Hungary have infinite number of men and resources. We have more... We can afford the losses. We're eventually going break to the, break them down. And they come close. There's some arguments that they come close in 1916 with the Somme Offensive. And the blood thing on the Eastern Front. So, uh, Schoffer has a plan with Haig that they're going to attack in the uh, Somme Department along the Somme River. Basically where the two armies meet and launch there. There's no strategic sense of that area. Haig would much rather attack on the uh, Belgian Flan- Belgian coast. Get rid of the german army in the channel ports they're using because that's where a lot of their u-boats are are sheltering out into uh into the north Sea in the england in the uh the channel the channel yeah so it would make more sense for him to attack there but he is the junior man in the group so he has to adhere he was told by england to adhere to uh joffrey and Joffrey's plan is they're gonna both attack majority french but more british troops Born Bruce troops are going to be coming online because all the palace battalions and the new army are being trained and equipped. That doesn't happen, so the Germans have the same idea. Almost, they want to break the French will and get rid of, and get rid of, uh, the, get rid of the French manpower and take out, go after England. Do you want to talk about the controversy? The new German chief of staff, his name is, uh, is it Falkenhayn. Eric von Falkenhayn. Do you want to talk about the idea of this? Was it really like, you know, believe France White, as a lot of history historians talk about? Or was it more so Falkenhayn covering his butt? <laughs> sure, I can talk a little bit about that. Um, so Falkenhayn, commander of the German army, he is a Westerner. He believes that the war can be decided in the West. And he's up against the combined duo of uh, Paul von Hindenburg and, and Eric Ludendorff, who were German generals in the East. They had dealt the Russians a major battle severe defeats. At Tannenberg they, in 1914. And they think that the wars are going to be in the East. And it's yeah. kind of a little power play between the Western generals and the Eastern generals. Yeah, um, if anyone has seen, people have seen Wonder Woman, Ludendorff is played by, oh, what's that guy's name? Danny's Danny something. He was the bad, German bad guy. He's only like slightly exaggerated, right? I say slightly exaggerated because I think in real life he was a piece of shit, but... <laughs> Sorry, I, I shouldn't be swearing on this podcast, but. Uh, no, no, I got my friends with Ludendorff. <laughs> I'll make him known. I hate his guts. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, so yeah. Falkenhayn, his idea, officially, what he says later in the war, as soon as the battle commences, they're going to attack the French at Verdun. Verdun holds a, a symbolic meaning to France. Um, sort of historical uh, events that happened there include like up until Charlemagne. So it has a very symbolic meaning to France. And his idea is they're going to threaten the Verdun line. I know I'm gonna like quote unquote this because it's very controversial. They're gonna threaten the Verdun line, and France is gonna keep sending all divisions into the fight, and they're gonna bleed the army, the army whites. What what did you say? Like he said, oh, I can give guarantee you, like for every two Germans killed, five Frenchmen will be killed. Yeah. So I was listening to a podca- podcast, not podcast, a lecture by uh, Richard Faulkner, talk mm-hmm. about Verdun, and like Falkenhayn was trying to tell like the Kaiser, and, like you know. Have the French team more lost than the Germans. Like, for every, like, two German soldiers that are killed, France will lose five soldiers. Right. Doesn't happen that way. No, no, that's, that's totally not what happened. Uh, there is controversy, because Falkenheim really doesn't explain or go over his, uh, his plans until the battle commences. Uh, there's some authors, I believe uh, Paul Jankowski wrote a book about Verdun a few years ago, won an award, uh, makes the case... So it makes the case that Falkenhayn's plan was a typical um, punch through the French lines like every other failed attack plan, just with more guns and more men. Uh, but it doesn't work out like that. The French hold the line and he sort of kind of backpels and says, oh, no, I'm just going to bleed the French Army white. We're not going to know. He wasn't really known for sharing his thoughts with his staff. And a lot of the German war records from the First World War were destroyed in the bombing of Berlin. One of the bombings of Berlin, 1935, that whole archive Building got hit. Yeah, it's one of the side effects of bombing World War Two. <laughs> right. Just he's an extremely controversial figure, so we might never know exactly what his thinking was. But officially, his his deal was we're gonna you know kill more Frenchmen than we're gonna lose our, for Germans. And as Austin said, like um, it didn't quite work out like that. Yeah. the The French they hold the line. They actually uh, put up a lot of their cannons on the other side of the. I forget the which river it was. It was the Meuse. The Meuse River. Thank you. The, right. Right. Mill on the, the Muse. Mill on the Muse. I should have known that. Um, yeah. And they're going to start. They, well, the, the German the army did statistics. Like, all right, we'll, every Frenchman dead. We we'll lose like one. one, one, one. Two. So, yeah. It was more mm-hmm. even. And after the end of the of a campaign, mm-hmm. when it's called off, like, the Kaiser kind of tells Fogheim, you're done. Yeah. So, if Fogheim gets replaced. <laughs> this is probably the... Um, I guess the best example of a battle over one battle Verdun it goes on from it, basically it's a meat grinder it's a meat grinder it starts in February of 1916 doesn't officially end until November of that year and each side has what, what close to like half a million casualties the, the, I've heard very conflicting figures so I'm based on Epic Histories uh, the, the the YouTube series mm-hmm. about Verdun yep they mentioned around 365,000 of the French about roughly the same for the Germans yeah, basically, it. It, it, it's a meat grinder. Like you got the division going in, and they, they gain chewed up like after a couple of days of combat. Yeah, that, that's why I knew a general who's in command of the area, Henri Pétain, Philippe Henri Pétain, which he'll become, he'll be more in World War Two, as leader of France, the collaborationers with the Germans. Um, he develops a system where you know he will rotate a he rotate units out of the fighting yes, every so they don't get chewed up and get completely wiped out. Yeah, now this is good, but it does like it means like three quarters of the French army are gonna fight it for a done. So in, during this time, Geoffrey cannot commit as many troops to the Somme offensive as originally planned. Yeah. So he's telling Hague to you need to take more. You take need to take more and more over the line. We'll help you out, but my I need to need to get in now, and you need to help me out now because I can't guarantee if my is gonna survive in the next year. Next year. So this, uh, I think this is like the best example of um, like the folly of World War One or like the the tragedy of World War One in England, the Somme offensive. So, Hay uh, Je- Hey, kicks off the offensive on July first in the Somme, the sum area. And Before area. Before that's like a weak lump bombardment, right? But the artillery. Yeah, it was a lot of artillery, but not as much artillery as you're going to have later. It's actually the, I've ever people say like the yardage was off, like there was this, there, there, there were two conflicting ideas at this point you have what's called the bite and hold tactics and this is probably by henry rawlinson who's of the i think the british fourth army which is going to be attacking in the somme region the it is: if you put a mass of guns in certain areas in massive troops you bite and hold you like concentrate in certain and a few area key areas you take over and you move on haig said that's not enough like like it- it's too limited i need like a more broader offensive to get into the fight, and to Craig's, the uh, the uh, tractors. He, I think, for at least a few, the next few battles, he does believe that I, if I have enough men and manpower, I can just push through the German lines. But that's a problem with every like First World War general; like, they always think I like, put more guns and more men in the same area. In this area, we can punch through the lines. It just doesn't work like that. And um, yeah, so July first rolls off, and all these new Pals battalions, they go over the top, and it's a slaughter. Most of them get slaughtered. All of them get slaughtered. It's around fifty-three thousand casualties on the first day alone. About one third of those are going to be killed in action. Yeah, and then like July first falls away, and everyone thinks that that was the Somme. Every every major, everything I've I've, any general thing I have learned about the Somme, they always talk about the first day of the battle. That's it. They don't talk about it. it goes on for another four or five months until November, where. This is like where the attritional warfare comes into play, like you kill more of the enemy than you kill more of you. Yes, the British do take about 10 miles of line, but they take a lot of losses in the meantime. Yeah, I, I've read somewhere between uh, 400,000 to 500,000 men, give or take, for the British Army are going to be lost. Uh, about 200,000 200, French are going to be lost in this, in this offensive. The Germans lose somewhere between 450,000 to as much as 600,000 men. Coupled with this and the uh, fighting at Verdun, they lose like, more than a million men, million men that year. The German army doesn't break, which a lot of intelligence, the Allies, think they will. It comes close. It comes close. And at the end of the year, by this time, Falcon has been replaced with uh, Ludendorff and Hindenburg, the dynamic duel from the east. And they realize, all right, we cannot take these kind of casualties. Like, we are script— it- we're screwing the bomb of the barrel here with manpower, so we need to figure out a new plan. Yeah, because there's still fighting of war on two fronts. Yeah. And about 1916, Lennon Brothers said, the naval blockade does come into play mm-hmm. more effectively. Now, in May, end of May of 1916, High Seas Fleet and the British fleet do clash off Jutland. Mm-hmm. It's kind of the base nail belt of the war. The Germans do stink more British ships, and then the British sink Germans. at the end of the day, the Germans have to go back to their home port and uh, the commander-in-chief of the German fleet, a guy named Reinhard Scheer, he sends a telegram to the Kaiser, and I'm not going to get the exact quote, but basically tells him, like, we cannot go back out uh, one-on-one fight against the British. If we do, the fleet's going to get destroyed. Right. So they, they basically sit in, sit in port for the rest of the war. Yeah, so that's when they... That's, like... Part Of the more strategy in 1917 when it kicks off, we can talk a bit more in a few minutes. Yeah, but that's one of the reasons why, like, the U-boats become more of the mainstream because, like, the, the the service fleet can't break the Black Kid, they can't break the British Navy, so they gotta rely more on their submarines to actually do the do the work for them. Mm-hmm. So, I think we can go into 1917. Do you think you want to end it at, like 1917 where the movie ends and maybe just talk a little? I, I'll, I'll do briefly like the loot, the offense of the 1918, but yeah, we're like, we're eating up the clock. Okay, all right. So we'll go briefly over what the situation is in nineteen seventeen, and basically where like the movie kicks off and ends. So nineteen seventeen, the uh, idea is for the Germans is all right. Our typical strategy of is, as soon as we get attacked and lose ground, we we'll immediately counterattack. We can't do it anymore. We're losing too many. We're losing too many men. We can't make up the numbers fast, anywhere near like the Allies can. So we need a new strategy. The strategy is to pull back on the line all all along the western front between like 10 to 25 miles depending on the sector, the location and construed a new defensive line. This is what's going to be called the Hindenburg line. This is what's going to be those what we're going to see more in World War II. The uh, pillbox, concrete pillbox, pillbox with interconnecting fields of fire where the idea is it's going to slow down and kill as many allied soldiers as possible and let them wear themselves out and then eventually we will counterattack but only after the other the allies have spent their have spent their forces. So that's their plan. While this is going on, there's been a change of up commanders in the French army. And I want to talk about the French army because they weren't really mentioned a lot in the movie. Uh Geoffrey is out by this point. Uh his idea for attrition was I think sound, but um he wasn't getting fast enough results I would say for the politicians, so like, I you need to go, like, there's there's too much of a call for you to to leave, so they're looking for a new commander. Mm-hmm. Peyton, who a lot of people see the picture of Verdun, is considered, but he's sort of a pessimist, and doesn't really have the offensive spirit that they're looking for. Like, they got he's gonna win the war. Foch, Fernand Foch, will become the Generissimo Supreme Com- Allied Commander in 1918, sort of considered, but he's also got some bad he's got some bad blood from earlier attacks like he, he was one of those generals that we keep attacking attacking we can break through so he wasn't considered he wasn't really at that point so they go to a man named robert neval neval and if you have talk to anybody in france he's got very high emotions about that name uh he commanded the verdun sector in the, like the last i think the last third quarter of the fight after payton was promoted yeah he had he said he had a formula he had like new tactics like um, creeping bar- barrages use of tanks. Now he was going to like break through the German front lines immediately and pour through and break the lines and like in the stomach still- in, in the war in 1917. Now it seems very good to the French public and a lot of the French politicians because uh, France has been very strained at this point. At Seventeen. There have been, I mean, they're suffering. The civilians, like they're suffering, like losing their families. Yeah. The, the food shortages. The army has taken a lot of heavy blows the last year and a half of the war. So, so uh, if it's gonna end the war, like, yeah, I have quick. read that French army morale was on the breaking point at Verdun. Like there was some notices of discontent and like you know mutinies, not like serious mutinies, but like you know. Just we don't want to go back into the meat grinder, and honestly I can't blame him i I don't think anyone here who was listening to this would tell couldn't tell me with a straight face that oh no, I can go into death ten twelve times and come out feeling the same way that, that that's b s so Neval has a plan he's gonna break through the German front lines in the chemin de dames area, which I believe is like northwest of France. it was an old haunting grounds of Louis the mistresses mm. yeah, it's like the road of the ladies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm telling you, man. Like, t- I'm telling you. He was, a, he, was a, he was a player. It's good to be the king. Indeed. Anyway, um, so here's the problem with NFL. He's got a bit of a lot of mouth. He says too much to the public about the offensive. Goes back to the frontline troops. Some of these frontline troops could catch in trench raids. And they spilled the beans to the Germans. So the yeah. ge- Well, the papers. The papers, too. Like, put too much in the papers. Like, so they know, like, the Germans know the offensive is coming. So I'm sure, like, the, the typical German officer's like, yeah, 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 keep talking. Yeah, so... This so around the same time everyone pulled back to the Hindenburg line. French intelligence gets gets, in, gets wind of this. And there was a lot of uh, fear in like the French government. Like, all right, our army's at the breaking point. We should need to consolidate. Let me guess. They told Neville, they're pulling back. Neville's like, you know, full speed ahead. Yeah. They, they, they argued with Neville not to launch the offensive, so they had a compromise. Naval would call it off after 48 hours if it didn't succeed. So, this is in April of 1917, around the same time as the movie. And it's not seen. The French attack in the Chimaine de Dames area. It's called the Chemine de Dames offensive. They lose closely to about 100 to 20,000, maybe 150,000 casualties in about a week. But we we could have a fighting. They capture some ground, but it's ground that the Germans gave up. And desolated. it's have It's desolated. So it's like useless ground. And they run smack dab into the Hindenburg line. And they don't break it. And... The casualties mount and finally novella is forced to call it off not in 48 hours but like a week later after he kept saying no oh, just one more attack one more attack so he's out like they said get the, get the get the f out of here and around this time is when the french a lot of units in the french army starts mutiny like they refuse to go into the attack now they're saying like they won't they're not cowards like they'll fight if in the home to the death but they're not going to raise They're going to do nothing. It's going to get them killed. Yeah. I've heard, I've heard a few people who talk about like the Marxist theory of it. Like we're not going to fight for imperialism or for, like for like honor or some concept of glory. That's kind of BS. That's not, that's more of like, um, I don't know. Say if you're like a, a Soviet, um, author in the '70s, you're trying to tell like why the French army would failed in 1817. Like, Oh, it's cause you know, the corrupted Western imperialist that that's kind of BS. Like, I don't buy, I don't buy that. It was more so like, look, we, we want like more leave better pay and we will we will defend our country we will defend our country but we do not for God's sakes do not send us to another use of the tag it's gonna just get us killed doesn't do anything so the French army is kind of out for the rest of the rest of the year uh, Henry Pétain P- 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 is going to become commander of the French army he will use the carrot and the stick. he'll execute some of the mutiny leaders but he will also pardon a lot and make sure the men are taken care of so his whole idea is all right because around this time too, America has gotten involved in the war because as Germany is going back to unrestricted submarine warfare, they piss off the Americans more because American ships are being sunk, america's being lost. Yep, and then we got the famous Zimmerman telegram. Yeah, well, if you go off like the YouTube comments, I see like, oh no, it never happened. It was all propaganda by the uh, evil. All right, everyone here, if you're listening to this, if you want to, like a uh, decent like history advice, don't listen to you don't listen to YouTube comments or Facebook. <laughs> Yes, the uncertified experts on YouTube who seem to know everything about everything. Yeah, we call them the internet warriors. Don't bring a keyboard, pal. <laughs> yeah, that's like... That. I'm saying as Social media is where I do just go to die. And yet, we're posting on social media. Yes, we are, but that's okay. It's self-filling prophecy, bro. No, it's not. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm in denial. But anyway, you know, all the plug backdrop. The United States does declare war on Germany. was about April 1917. About the same time, yeah. But... The United States Army is very small compared to the European armies, mm-hmm. and they are, like, way behind the time. So they got to build up yep. and get ready to go overseas. So it's going to take many months before the Americans actually get overseas in any big numbers to actually make a yep. difference. And while this is going on, the February Revolution in Russia has already happened. So you see the fall of the Tsarist regime and the introduction of the provisional government. And a lot of people in America and England and the West are happy because they didn't want to be allied with a despotic power. Now they can say, oh, world democracy is fine together. But Russia is going to be wishy washy the rest, the rest of the year. They, there's a lot of like political instability. And by the end of 1917, the. A pre- offensive that go nowhere and just break the army. Yeah. So it's kind of like a wild card. So at this point, Douglas Haig decides that it's a good time to keep pressure on the Germans. So he's going to attack in the Ypres region again. It's the Third Battle of Ypres. There was a Second Battle of Ypres in 1915 where the Germans tried to break the lines. They failed. It's the Third Battle. And this is what was called Passchendaele, correct? Yeah, so this is like past um, the um, plot of 1917, so we're already there. And uh, this is this is called Passchendaele. It's named after one of the towns in Belgium where the offensive occurred. It's Passchendaele or the Third Battle of Ypres. And again, I think I, I've read different accounts about this. I think Haig really did believe that he could break the German lines. And again, I think they did really come close to it. Because the uh, the new Hindenburg line, the concrete, the concrete pillboxes, and all that the defense in depth. depth. Mm-hmm. Um, the Allies, the British, found a way around that. Like they realized that, like they did the typical attacks, and they started getting eaten up. But um, they realized that you know Germany needs to send in troops to reinforce them, so they're gonna start firing in the areas of Germany of the German army, and it's gonna cut off the. Um, reinforcements going to the pillboxes so you can isolate each area one at a time and start taking them over so germany responds to this by putting more lunar response is by putting more men into the um, which into the front of trenches which is the kind of thing that's trying to avoid in the first place correct exactly so it's like this this whole thing of like you know the enemy does one thing you counteract with another and then vice versa um I don't know, I, i've heard i've, I've heard historians say that the bat that it could have broken the german army i think Nick Lloyd wrote a book on Passchendaele two years ago, which I read and was good. He does make the case that um, it did come close to cracking the German lines. But because they went with like the simple old tactics of the uh, in the beginning, trying to break through the entire area instead of like bite and hold. And like just use up the men. And then by the time like the offensive stalls, it's like November. It's raining. It's cold. The mud. (laughs) The mud. Defensive calls off. It comes close. It doesn't break the German army, but again, it's, it's one of those things where like, Zinnenberg Ludendorff like like thank God like the we can pull we can start pulling our men out of the out of the east because we're just uh, done in the west. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's a good way to end up in 1918. All right, and I'll really go over 1918. Like I said, it's going to be kind of fast and loose because we've spent too much, a lot of time already on this. Oh, so keep going. Okay, we're good. <laughs> All right. Sorry, folks. Still a little difficulty. But anyway, yeah, as we I, go. I was pressing with the bu- playing with the buttons. Yes. Uh, I call Ian Fastfinger Freddy because his fingers <laughs> work on the keyboard because <laughs> of his brain. But anyway, as we went to 1918, things are going to be changing. Uh, my brother mentioned his podcast earlier with the Russians mm-hmm. in the East. There is going to be what's called the Brest Treaty between the Germans and what's now like the Bolshevik government that takes over. Bolshevik, yeah. Bolshevik and Vladimir Lenin. Uh, basically, Germany takes a lot of swaths the territory, including the Ukraine, because they need the food stuff from the Ukraine to feed the Germans, because mm-hmm. they're starving. Uh, Lenin doesn't really negotiate, because he has to like get things all done now, because he's got a lot of internal problems to, like figure out, because there's a civil war coming up between like, the, the whites and the reds. By that point, the army had collapsed through Lenin. Like, I think, I, th- I want for me personally, my personal opinion, it's something that bites Lenin in the ass, because he was all like, you know, just... Destroy the morale of the, of the Russian army so we can take over. But now that army's gone, and you have no bargaining chip with the uh, the Germans.
1: That's my yeah. opinion, though.
0: Basically, the Germans bang out like bandits mm-hmm. in the Brest-Litovsk Treaty. I thought it was ironic because they'd complain about the Treaty of Versailles later, then it's unfair. But mm-hmm. you no, know, it was unfair for the Russians, but nobody really talked about that. No, which well, then the, the Brest-Litovsk Treaty was nullified at the when Germany surrendered. But I digress. With this treaty, the Germans are able to transfer a lot of their, all their units from the east to the west. Around 50 or so divisions mm-hmm. is enough for one last offensive. Ludendorff by now is commanding the army. He is concerned, like, the Americans are out in force. Sooner or later, they will pressure, and he can't defeat the Americans because they're, they're fresh, and his mm-hmm. army is kind of bottom of the barrel. What he is going to try to do is create these giant offensives that will break the British army, try to push them into the sea, knock them out of the war, concentrate in France, and be in a position of power, kind of negotiate some sort of armistice. Right. And this is what's called the Spring Offensives, 1918. It's also called like, the Lundorf Offensives, or the Kaiserschlag, the uh, Kaiserschlag. Kaisers battles. Anybody speaks German, I probably butchered that pronunciation, so do apologize. Hmm. This starts in March, and I believe ends in July or the summer of 1918. But I would say like June, July, because you yeah, got the, the... you got like the main offense, but then you got like the off, off like George Georgette. Yeah, so the so the the fight is starting to kick in. But basically in March, I'm Michael's kind of the biggest push, goes against the British Fifth Army, does kick his ass. Uh, I was into Hubert Goff. And the, the British Fifth Army gets kind of chewed up pretty badly. they kind of, kind of, and they're kind of knocked out. But to, to Goff's credit, like I won't like you know defend Goff too much because he was he wasn't in command. It was his responsibility. At this point, though, like the British Army started having some uh, manpower shortages. Uh, Lloyd, the premise at the time, Lloyd George, he was holding hundred thousand men back. I've read that it was for like the munitions industry. Like, if we're gonna have total war, these guys need to be in the factories and stuff. Could have been also for that he was th- so thinking about attacking in the east, like on the peripheries of uh, the of the army. So the British army started having they had to take over more of the line because of the French mutiny. But each division usually has twelve battalions. They had to get rid of uh, one in each brigade. So there's three brigades to a division. Three battalions have to go. So it's like it's sort of like we want you to do more of less. Which I think anyone who's ever worked for a either a contract company or a, a warehouse knows exactly what I'm talking about. Do more with less. Or a non-profit or government organization. I've done that. Do more with less, yes. <laughs> and then wonder why people leave. leave. I, Surprise Pikachu <laughs> <get your> face. <laughs> but anyway, Operation Mose in March, they do punch in, take territory. But Ludendorff makes a number of errors in the offensives because he is using what he learned out in the East. You mm-hmm. know, punch through the lines... There's not many railways. There's not many roads. It's mm-hmm. going to take a while for the Russians to counterattack so we can, like, do what we want in the, in the back. Mm-hmm. A lot of like Western counterparts say that's not how it works here. The French have railroads. They're gonna counterattack. You, Ludendorff. like, nah, screw that. Full speed ahead. Yeah, well, like, at this point, Ludendorff has more clout than the guys in the West. Cause yeah, they so Ludendorff knew... has been of an ego. A yeah. colossal ego. I like Scott Stevenson's uh, lecture on Ludendorff. Yeah, Especially so... that quote that, uh... <laughs> but, but by Fox, like, is this kind of what he's doing? <laughs> All right, we're getting a little silly, but... Yeah. Anyway, the French counterattack and they handle the Germans. That offensive stalls. Mm-hmm. Lunar tries again, like Operation Georgette, a bit further to the north, I believe. Mm-hmm. That makes headway. That stalls too. He tries a few more offensives down towards the south around the Marne River. Mm-hmm. Got like a Blucher York and I think like a Gneisenau. Gneisenau, yeah. I can't pronounce it. A couple of operations. Mm-hmm. Again, they take some territory, but it doesn't really give anything back for the Germans yeah. it's kind of like the no man's land territory and, and by this point a lot of his like specialized shock troops that they've trained over the like yeah. the last 6 months like, the to... like, the the German army like financed like rehone their training their doctrine mm-hmm. their troopers infiltration tactics like the elite elite troops to punch through the lines and get territory but at this point the elite troops mostly dead yeah what you got left is the cannon fodder like the guys like i I want to go home like like the hell of this war and doing the offensives, he's going to find, like, a lot of his units because they're starving. They haven't, mm-hmm. some, like, cigarettes or alcohol-like delicacies that the French and Jer- British have. Yeah, they just gore themselves on, like, all those captured captured like, supplies, that slows it down. Also, yeah. they're trying to reinforce success, but they're going through no man's land. It's, like, muddy. Mm-hmm. There's very little, like, transportation. Yeah. So, like, the offensives stall. Towards the end, the Americans do help a little bit, but it's mostly British and French that stop the offensives. Yeah, because talk, I talk briefly, like, I think in America we get this idea that... Oh, oh, America saved the day! If the war had gone into 1919, that would have been more of the case. We would have taken more of the brunt. But I think... I think we had an ego. I, I think, like, um... I don't know. The American exceptionalism that was talked about so much in college. In college and school, yeah, which, growing up later, I found was complete bollocks. <laughs> There's some of it there. Mm-hmm. There's some... Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> it's like 10% truth, 9% BS. 9% BS, just... Uh, yeah. But the point is, like, the British and French mostly defeat the offensives. Yeah. The Americans do help a little bit towards the end. Yeah, and then in the uh, summer and fall of 1918... That's when the Americans really start to, like, do yeah. more of the offensives. And the Allies go on the offensive, and they start pushing the Germans back to the German border. This is what's called the Hundreds days' offensive, where they just keep rolling and keep pushing back the Germans. Yeah, and at this point, the Ludendorff has a couple breakdowns, comes back to his senses and goes, All right. He goes to the I think by this point, um, the Kaiser had been overthrown or like like they will not the Allies would not negotiate if the Kaiser was still in like technically in charge. So the monarchy? The monarchy, yes he got rid of the monarchy. So he goes to the uh, politicians in the um the government, who it's not the Weimar Republic, but they're they're in charge of the civilian government. He goes, You alright, you must I must um like, fix what you have started, like, your mistakes. And, like, what I've learned by over is he did not take any, like, responsibility at all for, like, the collapse of the, the German army. So, yeah, at this point, the German army, it's basically on its last legs. Yeah, there's kind of, like, a toll collapse towards the end where the army units start surrendering, and they start, like, giving up. Yeah. And, like, the morale just nosedives. mm mm-hmm. And it's about this point that, like, what's November of 1918? You got, like, the armistice, uh, the 11th hour, the 11th day. Yeah. The 11th month, exactly. Yeah, this is when, um, like the war ends, not officially. It's an armistice, it won't officially end until the conclusion of the Versailles Treaty. You know, the thing with Ludendorff, I'll go a little bit of a tangent from what I've read. I'm not a big fan of him, even with a hundred plus years of hindsight. Looking back, it seems like he never accepted responsibility that maybe he was at fault for what, what went wrong in the German military. Mm-hmm. His offensives like he got stuff wrong but it appears he never really accepted that and he's one of the big proponents of the whole stab in the back myth yep. where the german military was not defeated in the field it was stabbed in the back by the cowards in the civilian government and the like the, the social democrats like the socialists the marxists and that will include the jews the jews of germany and that's he's one of the big architects is... When Elf Hitler comes into power, mm-hmm. he will use those arguments saying, No, we, we were never defeated in the field. And we were sat on the back by the Jews. And that's one of the reasons I did find interesting that mm-hmm. in 1916, the German military did make kind of a legal um, looking around for is the Jewish population of Germany really pulling its weight in the war? That report comes back. It basically says, Yes, they are. Mm-hmm. And before I read, this is from Wolf Rent. Wolfram's book, uh, Wolfram Wet's book, the Wehrmacht Myth. Most mm-hmm. goes in World War II, but tells <laughs> World War One, the anti-Semitism of the German military in World War One. Like Apparently, that report that basically told Ludendorff like the guys was like, no, you're wrong. The Jewish population of Germany is actually doing pulling its weight. <laughs> like that report got shoved into a desk and like never saw light of day. It's too bad though. It's too bad like at, at the end, um, Ludendorff never had a talk with either Haig or Foch. I, I don't know. Maybe they did. Maybe they didn't. <laughs> Like, personal, like, face-to-face, and I w- wish Eric had said something like, you know, my arm is never defeated in the field. I want, um, you know, Douglas Hayes to go. Must have the, <laughs> the crock of shite. My boys kicked the crap out of your, out of your, out of your lads. Yeah, right, I tease it, bro. it's kind of more in a fan fiction. Sorry. Sorry, I'm a little, uh, speculative, speculative, speculative history. What if? The passionate historical discourse, if you are believing the words of uh, Aline Gehrig <laughs> Aline Garrick, former and <laughs> occupier. <laughs> But, um, anyway, the war ends in 1918, well, the, the fight ends in 1918, but mm-hmm. not until Trooper side that it actually officially ends. Yeah. And uh, there's a lot to go after that, but that's not, that's not a Pumas podcast where I got like what, two hours? Yeah. If you guys want, I, I could do like a half an hour spiel about the First Side Treaty in another week or two if you guys are really interested. There are other good YouTube channels out there you can check out. The Great War has done a great job I will about. The first side just the war in general. I recommend you really check those out. Uh, any of my buddies out there who wanna, who I've been badgering about like the last two years, definitely watch it. They're like ten minute episodes each, but they're really good. Hmm. We're we'll gonna do it at the end a little bit of a work Sure. All right. Uh, so I think we can go into back to the movie, what we liked and uh, what we didn't like. And for me personally, I want. Why am I, I, I jumping right here? I, I like the fact that they did include um, the imperial soldiers of the uh, the British Empire. In the opening scene, you see a couple of um, African soldiers in there, and I don't, I don't know if they were inter- I don't know if they were personally integrated in like the units, but there were, like, there were imp- imperial soldiers from Africa or from like the the Caribbean, India as well, India as well, yeah, w- w- like the the the, the, se- the Sepoy the Sikhs in uh, that one scene, because um, honestly, the- actually I got the numbers, I I looked at the numbers here like the last couple of days, so in the UK about eight overall. 8.7 million men served overall overall over 5 million of those are on the Western Front and I broke it down by um, by a uh, nationality nation Canada had about 400 thousand men men and women serve and I liked that little tidbit when Mark Sean was talking about the Newfoundland regiments that uh, attacked mm-hmm. and broke through they were, like punched a hole in their lines like Newfoundland had it's like a th- they had a regiment of a thousand men in the Somme they lost like 900 of them in like a matter of minutes Damn, yeah,' because they were supposed to attack Bimo hama Hamal, I think I just pronounced it, but when they were going through the communications trenches that they get through was truck full of wounded, so the commander said we need to get there soon, he gave the order to attack and just go over the trench line, so most of their men got shot on the way there Out yeah, in the open In the open, yeah, so it's, it's it's like a big it's like one of the big points of uh, the sum. July 1st, uh, Australia, oh, sorry, Australia and, uh, Tasmania, you're going to see like 330,000 men and women serve overall. So, you know, you got like the Anzacs and in Gallipoli, you got the Anz the Australians fighting in, uh, in Passchendaele. You got, uh, South Africa, I had 74,000 men, Newfoundland, 10,000, like I said, uh, the West Indies, I believe this was like the, in the Caribbean region area, like, yeah, you know, Jamaica, Barbados and all that, 16,000 overall served. And the Indian Empire has the largest contingent of uh, 1.5 million men. And they're going to lose about uh, 60 to 70, 74,000 men overall in the First World War. And I really I really did like Sam Mendes, how he portrayed that, because it, it just shows it wasn't just a, a white man's war, which I think we, we caught a lot of or didn't really learn about too much in, like growing up. So I, I did enjoy that part of like, I, I like that you did show that it wasn't just, you know, everyone was fighting. Everyone the empire was fighting, and um, I know, can talk. I can talk a little bit about like the how they remember the dead. You know, in the Brit. At least when I read about when I read in David Reynolds' book and uh, David um, Alugasa's book about uh, you know the imperial soldiers fighting, they weren't really well remembered, and a lot of them got um, shafted at the end of the war. Same thing. Same thing with the French. So, with the French army. And the same thing with the Epic American soldiers for the US Army, both World War One and World War Two. Yeah. Which that's not our finest hour, is it? No. No, that's that's something I really wanna investigate, like. You you got like the like a little bit of a tangent, but like the the, the, the African American soldiers in World War Two, they go overseas, they fight, they die, they come back. The guys telling them, like go over there, serve your country are the same guys are gonna be telling that you can't have the same rights as a white man. Yeah, yeah, it's funny how that works out, isn't it? And I, I ha- I'm going to have a thesis, might mm. be wrong, but I'm going to assume most of those guys that say you can't you can't have the same rights are the same guys that say, Ah, oh, I got bone spurs, I can't, I, I can't go overseas, I can't go to Europe with the Pacific. Bone spurs? My God, Austin, who could you possibly be talking about? that has bone spurs in modern day American politics? I have no idea. <coughs> <laughs> or, but anyway, orange man. let's uh, let's proceed. Okay, proceed. So, uh, yeah, I I enjoyed that. Like, they included, like, that representation because I think that is important. Like, people need to know, like, they were involved in the war. Hey, man, you're right. Maybe us, us white guys do get overtly sensitive about topics like these because I've seen many Facebook and YouTube arguments about that whole like it's yeah. Like so ten, it's ten minutes of the one that it seen. Yeah, the cut in folks. So we did a lot of research We're trying to find the reviews and like articles about the movie. Mm-hmm. There was a row in the United Kingdom because this famous actor, I think Lawrence Fox, mm-hmm. made a quote saying, "You uh, know, you know, it was kind of racist to like put an Indian soldier in when they shouldn't have been there." One, I think that's his argument. Yes, and then he got blowback. And, you know, some, like, the Indian historians said, you know, some units, you know, they were in their own units. Mm-hmm. But, you know, during combat, they can merge together between British and Indian units. I just know most of the, the uh, Indian army that was in the, the Western Front was out by, like, mid-late 1915. And they, they fought in Mesopotamia. They fought in the Middle East. But, uh, yeah, they were there. And uh, they could mix together. Just, yeah. you know Casualties ramp up. And, you know, you got to make ad hoc or, like... By the hip, you know, it's like, you guys, you guys perform together. Yeah. It was just, it got stupid. And like this, my brother said, Facebook and YouTube, like the comments, you know, I've read plenty of comments on Facebook and YouTube. And it does make me question humanity a little bit because it gets really stupid and pointless and like, no one's ever solved. There's a lot of jackasses on, on social media about that. Oh, yes, because behind a keyboard, the internet is anonymous, so they can say whatever they want everyone's an expert everyone is a certified expert everyone's an expert everyone's a keyboard <laughs> <warrior. laughs> some pretty keyboard pal yeah so that that was why I enjoyed the most about it I enjoyed that I enjoyed like the, the realism of um, no man's land and uh you know fighting in the in the war, first world war because I don't think America American American audience really understands World War one I. I think we get like the the two minute um, lecture in school like going over the top and everything uh we get like Amer. I think most of our idea is that America wins the war, which is not necessarily true. If you say that, then you're like, then like all those millions of French, Russian, British imperial soldiers who had died, Belgian soldiers who had died, like it means nothing to them. That's not fair. That's not fair to them. It isn't. I like the realism. Mm-hmm. I like the civilian aspect. That one scene with the French woman. Yes. It does tell the audience that civilians do suffer during wartime. Yes, they do. You will see that a lot in World War One, especially in World War II on the Eastern Front, mm-hmm. a lot of civilians will suffer under hardships under the Wehrmacht, and to an extent, the Soviet armies once they do their counteroffensives and go into the Third Reich, just that. You no, know, it's not really shown on the big screen. Historians, like on you know, the big screen, historians when they read their books, they like to talk about the big stand up battles because mm-hmm. that 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 brings the attention. Yes. Civilians just do suffer in wartime, and like the numbers are astounding, and what they go through is abysmal as well. Mm-hmm. I also liked the single track. Yes. It is unique. Not everyone will like it because I've seen some critiques about it. I appreciate it because it kind of felt like I was there mm-hmm. going with Schofield and Blake as they go through the lines trying to accomplish the mission. As we said earlier they did No Man's Land beautifully. In its most surreal, horrible, horrifying sense, what's a criterion, Lannister? I'm gonna paraphrase it. I found No Man's Land beautiful in a horrifying sort of way, like that. <laughs> I did too. And the shows like this. This is pure hell. Yeah, this is pure hell, and it's like yeah. it's something we can have. It's nothing that people can compare to today. Well, yeah, there's a few times, but yeah, you can't just like the scope is just astounding. Mm-hmm. What didn't you like about the movie? What's something like some of the detractors? So the field behind the artillery, I think Sam Mendes wanted a like, little juxtaposition, but that really should have been like all chewed up the hell. Cause it's, it's too nice. It, yeah, it's too nice because when they're doing their counter batteries, their their artillery fire yeah. like they got you know, like you got hundreds of thousands of shells firing every day along behind the lines, going miles behind the lines. So that yeah. landscape should have been chewed to hell. Mm-hmm especially if it's like during the the wet season because then you're gonna get mud you gotta get soldiers falling in the mud you gotta get soldiers drowning subbing. in mud yeah like passion deal which is kind of a that's that's October when to die yeah I mean, man on our Facebook group I could probably post a couple of photos of like the western Front in the mud just to give people a chance yeah you can um, do that general reference about what the hell happened um the simple plot might detract mm. from the viewers because it is kind of, it is kind of simple I don't know like people uh I like seeing if Ryan had a simple plot and I enjoyed it. I did, too. Um, there is little mention of the French army. Mm-hmm. And you know, numbers-wise, the French army does tackle more of the Germans. I got this because I went on Epic History's uh, made a post about in 1917. Mm-hmm. And like most of the comments are YouTubers freaking out. Like, there's no French army. You know, this is British propaganda. Like, so on and so forth. Ah, uh, the, tr- the triggering. Yeah, like, guys, it- it's based off this director's grandfather's he's yeah. of course, it's not gonna have the French chill the f out like it, that got my nerves. Mm-hmm. Also, some folks will critique that it doesn't really show the evils of nationalism, like the you know, the census of World War One. Uh, would this be about the article you read in Salon Magazine? Yes, now I read an article in Salon Magazine and talk about you know, the movie is makes nationalism too great, it doesn't critique it, so therefore. The author couldn't really enjoy the film because it didn't show, like, the evils and horrors of of nationalism. Did you see any nationalism in that movie? Honestly, I didn't. Uh, For one minute, I did not entertain the thought of, you know, I'm going to join the military and, you know, do my part. Like, go overseas, you know, for my nation, for the United States. Like, I never saw that. I saw, like, war as hell. Mm -hmm. These guys have lived for one day, but what's they're not going to kill the next day? Another point is offensive. Yeah. I like I didn't understand that entire article at all. I'm like I I don't yeah and and, and folks like we'll post it later. So if you want to read it for yourself, see what you mm-hmm. what you think think we're wrong. By all means, like yeah, go ahead and blast us. But I thought that the author was mistaken because you know you don't have to have the soldiers like go through the trenches like talk about the politics of the war because you know they got big things and they like trying not to get killed. Yeah, I, so that gonna take five minutes. Like, oh man, you know, we just like go back home. You know, this is pointless. We're fighting for empire and imperialism, and uh, you did, know, you get like that one scene where the guys are like are, are bitching about yeah, out the trailer, why are we in France, we should get the hell out of here. Yeah, but well, the thing is very typical of any army, in any war. Like, like I'm sure, like the Romans, they're bitching about like what, why are we, why we in Gaul. Yeah, why we in Gaul? Yeah, I want to go back home to Rome. Yeah, you know, like the typical, I think like there's always a typical like um like the complaining. Yeah, you just like, the, the movie. Driving. Didn't have to be, like, all the the political, like, drama in the background. Like, oh, why are we fighting this pointless? You know, this, this is a hopeless, pointless war. Yeah. Uh, I didn't see that. And to be honest, you know, when they were marching, you know, they could have said, man, you know what? It does kind of evil that the British is in here. Like, but those Germans, all they're doing is they're taking a civilians, put them in this, into forced labor. Yeah. Could've that, but they didn't. Yeah, you know, the, the, the guy where the article didn't mention that about the uh, the Germans. Like, what's 120, 120,000 Belgians were taken yeah. into forced labor? That was like Lundor's brainchild, even though the politics program was saying, like, Eric, that's a bad idea. It's a it's not gonna it, it, it's it's not not give gonna gonna us like, the output, and it's gonna the worst of all, it's gonna get pissed off at us. Yeah. And then lo and behold. <laughs> that that's one of the reasons why Lundorf's not not my uh It's on your shit list. Yeah, it's on my shit list. <laughs> uh what else do we not what else we uh not without There was another article by Slate, kinda of the same thing, like it she like oh, even in a pointless war that these soldiers can do something great and it makes it worthwhile. And again, it's kind of a salon article. I didn't agree with it. By all means, folks, feel free to read it yourself and make up your own mind. But from what I gather from the article, they want the uh, thing to be like, maybe like the end of Gallipoli where, I mean, where Mel Gibson's trying to run back to his lines and, and he fails him. and his best friend dies in a pointless attack. Yes. I think that's what the, the writer of that article wanted to happen. That everybody dies. It's a pointless war. I mean, to give them credit, I think everyone's looking at the world, the first world war, through the modern perspective. We think it's a pointless war. What like, do you think that the that those fighting right after the war thought? You know, there were guys that that thought like the war was pulling us from the get go. A lot of guys said they. Th- what I read, they were doing their part. They're doing their part in the blue. They believed in the cause. Maybe not like you know overtly patriotic, like in the Patriot, where. Um Heath Ledger's character Gabriel's talking about, you know, we're gonna create a new nation, like all that pitch. That's what's a, 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 a bunch of BS. That's like that's like that's what you tell like the the propagandists to the get the civilians. But a lot of these guys, they said there was um it's like our nation our country needed us and we we won. Like I called up. Like this is it's what it's expected of us. I I think the disillusion only came like years later during the twenties and thirties and when people were like, Do we really need to fight that war? At the time i I think for the most part, they said the soldiers fighting thought yeah they they sh- they need there was there for them to be there. We're looking at because we're we're looking at the first war, the first world war through our perspective, our viewpoint, what we know now, what, what we know now about World War two and everything happened from World War one, yeah, like the guys in nineteen seventeen like like from the the generals to the politicians to the civilians at home to the the soldiers on the front lines then another nothing of like this no one has like 2020 20 vision like in the future or yeah, foresight but didn't folks say this is kind of like 20 minute ceasefire or 20 years ceasefire uh at the conclusion of the versailles treaty he said this is an armistice for 20 years so he knew the dangers but that's he was like one voice in a, in a sea of, you know this is fine yeah it, the versailles treaty it was the best that everyone was gonna get it was the best what they were working with mm-hmm. Everyone's got their own different viewpoints and stuff but um yeah i don't know this I don't. Maybe if we went back in time and I could talk to, some, like the front line soldiers, like like the whole thing with like we learned in school, like the like the poets, what's about the futility of war, they did not reach a general audience during that like during their time. Like guys like Siegfried Sassoon, Wilfred Owen, like they're great poets and they they should be remember, remembered. And they're great. It's great stuff. Listen to in English class in history class, but. I think at the time they really didn't make a big impact on like the general like population either in the military or in the civilian world maybe in like like the, the like the closed upper lawn circles of like you know high literatus like the high literature but not like the average joe on the street man the average jordan on the street I just just what I've read I've read that from like in David Reynolds and the long shadow I've read that I believe it might have been Max Hastings Max again in his night book in 1914 but that's what I've read and um yeah, like a lot of our viewpoints growing up as kids, well, they're viewpoints. They're not like, it's not, it's what we know now, not what they knew like a hundred years ago. So what's the problem with writing history books? You got to be careful. Mm-hmm. You can't put the um, mentality of today in like the actions of the past. Right. You could to some extent, but if you really want to like try to explain the motivation, so you got to like work in their context, like work, uh, what they, what they got to work with. Not with, like what we know now. Right. Unless you're a time traveler. And if somebody has a time travel machine, let me know. Or unless you're David Irving, who just lies. David Irving, piece yeah. of... And then he gets found land court. Says he did nothing wrong. And I still got to debate guys on YouTube and Facebook that still hold Irving as, like, this gospel, I'm like, oh, my God, do I have to do this again? And, like, they keep saying, no, no, Irving's great. You, you're, you're a lie. You're probably, like, the mainstream fake, fake history. I'm, I'm going to paraphrase uh, Tick when he was talking about the Manstein. Blessed be the David Irving, for he can do no wrong... Even though he was found in a in a world court that he was a piece of crap. <laughs> uh, All right, we got uh, we got a few minutes left, so we we did the review. We liked. What do you what do you want to see for the future for World War One films or books or media? I would, for me personally, I would like more in like the Western world to focus on the the imperial soldiers of the armies of the British Army. If we could talk about like the the Sikhs or the Indian Army of World War One, talking mm-hmm. about the. Senegalese Taylor layers and uh, from the French Army in World War Two. I just, their stories aren't really well known and I don't think a and lot they of... they bled and died. Yeah, as well. And I mean, I think most of their, these guys are dead and most of their are dead, but like, I think the decent thing that we can do is to get their story out in the open and tell tell the truth and, you know, for better or for worse, the good things that happened and the bad things that happened. Like, get it out so people know about it because otherwise it's... We're not told we're not showing like the larger picture it's not it's not um we're not showing the whole story yeah and um you know less american junior wisdom too is probably a good idea i mean as a kid i thought it was great as a as i'm an adult and i get older i'm like nah like guys this is, this is not this is not real life <laughs> how about you what do you would like to what do you like to see i would love to see a mini series for the opening moves in the summer of 1914 out of the july crisis the fighting on the Western Front, like for the British, the German, and the British soldiers. Okay, you gotta be very careful with that. I'm gonna tell you right now. Depending on where that is made, it's gonna give a very different opinion about who 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 caused World War One. Well, we could go to just uh, the fighting in the in August, because what I wanna see is you know. We could, how about nationalism, like the imperialism? You could mm-hmm. talk about, you know, everybody gung-ho going to war. It's going to be a short thing, going to be glorious. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the fighting. And, and even that, what I've read about it is kind of, maybe it's like BS. And like some guys were like that, but other people were like, yeah, it might be longer. We're not really enthusiastic about the war. But yeah, that'd be cool. Opening moves, 1914. I would like, like that. the frontiers, Mons, the Mar, at the end, like everyone's digging in. Like this is going to be a long, long haul. Yeah. And it fades to black like it mm-hmm. ends like that yes. i'd also love because i'm a naval history nerd a mm-hmm. movie about Jutland, you got like the lar- largest naval battle and one, one, one of the largest history between the british and the germans i don't believe there's any movies based off that yet i do hope that's the case i do want to hopefully have a good director for that you know rich. i did like midway it's got problems mm-hmm. Roland M. she's come a long way since the Patriot. Yes, we keep going back to the Patriot. Yes, for good reasons. The <laughs> Patriot is like one of got-all movies. <laughs> if you ask like, any like serious like a story about the Revolution, and they ask you like, "What's the worst movie you could think of?" Think of uh, probably the Patriot. You want to play a drinking game? Like take a shot every time you get something wrong in the Patriot. Probably got to die of alcohol poisoning <laughs> before it ends. Well, we can do a review on that. The Patriot, like, like why, why, why we keep why do we hate it so much? <laughs> I'm still working on my Rev War stuff. Okay, Um, yeah, that that'd be cool. You know, if as long as it doesn't say like uh, Jell-O was won by the American Navy, like there's no American Navy at all. Like, what are you talking about? Technically, the Americans helped out when they started the war. When when they joined the war, well, the reason why the Brit you both started to like lose their effectiveness in 1917, Mm -hmm. the British adopt convoys. Yes, they get American help, like American destroyers, then the escorts, because the British are kind of stretched thin. They oh, do okay. play a part. Okay. Well, we can talk about that. So let's see what we got. We got a uh, miniseries. We got uh, ooh, a French movie about the uh, same same thing. Yeah. I think if American audiences know about what happened with, what the French did in World War One, it might dissipate the uh, whole cheesy and surrender monkey myth of uh, World War Two. Was that really World War Two? Was that like around like the Iraq War, around 2003 that first came up? Like the whole free and fries thing? I, I don't remember, man. I, was, I, was I guess to be honest, I when ago. I was in high school, mm-hmm. I really went through the whole thing. Like, you know, oh, the French are cowards and the Freedom Prize, all that stuff. Like, oh, like the flag waving. Dude, we were 13 and stupid. I know. And then I, I got to realize that, oh, that was just a bunch of propaganda. Yeah. Yeah. You got to be careful with propaganda. You got, you got to be able to see through the lines. But you can't be, like, paranoid where, like, even if, if you see, like, the truth, you refuse to be looking the truth. You, then you got a problem. Then then just a denier. Hmm. Uh, unknown theaters: Africa, the Middle East, the Pacific. They've done a few miniseries on that. Some movies like the African Queen. I think that Australia did a movie about the ANZACS in the Middle East. Lawrence of Arabia. It would be cool to see something similar that's like the Pacific, or again, like it would tie into my my idea of like the imperial soldiers. Yeah, this, is, this is a global war. This is a global war. It's not just like the Western Front. That's that, that's like I think that's what most people know about the World War One. Speaking of the fronts. Mm-hmm. Would you s- suggest a movie about the Eastern Front, showing the point of the Russian soldier? Uh, that would be cool, especially since the USSR collapsed because we can have more of a balanced perspective. Alexander, forgive me. <laughs> Alexander, I'll be in uh, I'll be back in Vermont soon if you want to like have some drinks and debate the final points of US and Amer- US and Russian relations. It it would be cool because um, I think there's a lot of myths about the Russians in the World War One, which can be dis- dispelled. You know that the Russian army did do a lot. Unfortunately, yeah. it came out short, but it wasn't like they were totally inept. David Stone did a had a great quote about the Russian army. He said in World War One, every army was suffering, but Russia was suffering the most, more or like lacking the most. Like I'm paraphrasing that, but uh, yeah, I think if they could. Because I think as the centennial goes on, and if we can get good movies like this, it's gonna increase the public interest. If we could start expanding that, because for me, I know everyone's like World War Two is awesome. Like, well, like every Hollywood always goes gaga for World War Two, the good war. You can't really underst- call a good. You, can, you really can't call World War One a good war. Yeah, you can't. But um, you really can't understand the modern day politics I think until you understand the effect of World War One. That's my opinion, and I don't know, technically you can say, well, was a good war, depending on where, who you're talking about. I mean, technically the U.S. kind of got the best deal. Yeah, we did. I mean, the U.S. lost men, but they weren't blood white like other nations. Yeah, then they were forgotten. We have a problem with that. We have a problem forgetting uh, the people that shed their blood for us. Well, we can talk about that later. Okay. Just okay. when I do my job... In the summer, I tried to put the sacrifices of both, you know, forced enslaved, and you know, typical colonial people. Gotcha. Yeah, that that makes sense. And you know, I'm a little, I'm more of a romantic about the past, as you know. And you've always tried to ground me to reality. Yes, because romanticism is on one side, and I like to do a thing called reality on the other side. So you're like, all right, I like to, I like to teach history. I like to call it the right way. <laughs> yes. All right, so all right, Shakespeare. So we've gotten all that. Do you want to talk a little few minutes about the resources we use and any further reading because we're about the tail end of our uh, podcast? Yeah, I got a few minutes to look. So, folks, the book I read is called Terence Zuber's work, and it's called like the Real German War Plan, nineteen o four to nineteen fourteen. I enjoyed it. It talked me about German perspective about like their plans for going to war, like France, eventually Russia. Mm-hmm. I will warn you folks that he's very technical and very detailed, so unless you're like, you got a good background like military history, mm-hmm. military terminology and stuff, it's gonna like lose the, the, the general reader. Okay. Also, reading his, his reviews and other his other works, he's a bit of a journal file. so while he refutes myths, myth, yes. myths, he tends to prep up new ones, kind of something the German army could do no wrong. I see. But... He is a good source to look as well. There was also a bunch of lectures done by various authors and historians on the World War One museum playlist. at things like Kansas. There was a yep. YouTube link. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll at Scott Stevenson and Richard Faulkner to name a few about Verdun and Lunar Offensives. Um, Again, the Slate article by Rebecca Onion, titled 1917, turns history's most pointless war into a tale of individual heroism. And the article from Slate, titled, let me take a look. Uh, Where where is it? So I'm going through the uh, works right here. 1917 is one major flaw. It's irresponsible and nationalistic. This is from Salon.com. My Matthew Rosa, he is a master mm-hmm. student. He's a doctorate student as well. By all means, real articles if you disagree with me or my brother. Feel free to talk about it. I think 19. I think World War One was the most. I think World War the most prominent war in the 20th century. No, yeah, there are others. Oh yeah, that, there are bigger, more others. <laughs> Let's see what else do we have. Um, Epic History is a YouTube channel. Does stuff a older one as well. Mm-hmm. It it won't go too in depth per year, but it'll give you like you're running an account, so you kind of have a sense of like what's going on mm-hmm. per year, per month. And that's all I got. Uh, by all means, bro, take it over. I recommend checking out the Great War channel. They've been on for about the last four or five years. They've covered it World War One week by week. They get really into it, and they do special episodes. They're still including the after effects of World War One, and they have branched off into uh, World War Two. I think the whole uh, whole uh, channel is called Time Ghost, like the Time Ghost uh, Patreon Patreon. Yeah, check out the Great War channel. Uh, some of the books I used were uh, Peter Hart's Peter Hart's books on the Somme. The Darkest Island on the Western Front, and also Fire and Movement, the British Expeditionary Force in the Campaign of 1914. If you want a good, a couple of good um, complete histories of the First World War, check out the First World War book by Martin Gilbert, released from 1994. Sir Martin Gilbert was the official biographer of Winston Churchill after the um, death of his son Randolph, and had been a uh, preeminent male British historian for like the last six. 50 or so years. Unfortunately, he died a few years back, as most of my um, book authors that I read are already dead. Most guys we read are dead. Yeah, mostly old guys. Yeah, that could be us. Yeah, good guys too. Uh, John Keegan's The First World War is an, is an excellent read. Uh, J.G. Meyer, A World Undone, The Story of the Great War, 1914-1918. He's good. You can read through him um, sort of easily. I find he does kind of like... Probably some of the uh, former myths too, like the, the, the generals with you know behind the front the Chateau the Chateau Generals. The Lions. The, what was, what lions was the, led by donkeys. Yeah, that's the British quote, right? The which the is a drug. quote by Alan Clark, and when pressed he said it would never happen, I made it up. Oh. He didn't know, did he? Yeah, I've I've heard I've heard a few things about Alan Clark. Like he kinda did it for like pizzazz and uh, nobody ever really said that. Oh. Um, Nick Lloyd, he, his book on Passion, uh, The Lost Victory of World War I, which was written back in 2017, he dispelled another myth about Passchendaele. There's a staff officer who goes to the Passchendaele front line to the end, and he, like, cries, oh, my God, do we really send our men out into that? He's looked it up, and he couldn't find no record of it during the war, and it came about later in, like, the like, early 30s in someone's review of Passchendaele. Ah! Ah, I see. So kind of the historiography where the memory of the war is shifting towards a more negative sense. Yes. And somebody needed a uh, quote from an officer at the front line. So that was kind of made up. As far as he could tell, because he could not find any like record at that time about it. No one spoke about that, that, that officer. I couldn't get the the officer's name. But yeah, it was like, you have to go a little bit into the story, historiography about it. Mm. And it ties into what I said earlier, like during the war, I want to say most of the soldiers, you know, they, they did believe what they, they believe, believe what they were doing. And it was only like afterwards that the disillusionment disillusionment came in, which we could, I, uh, people may talk more about world war one. I, I could go into my personal feelings about the, about the war. But, um, anyway, I digress. I'm sorry guys. Uh, Richard Holmes. He was one of the eminent military historians of Great Britain. If you want to read a book about the the British Army in this time, you should read Tommy, the British Soldier on the Western Front from 1914 to 1918, published by uh, Harper, HarperCollins Publishers in London, circa 2004. He's good. He will go through like the day-to-day like life. He'll talk about the different count, like how the regiments were broken up, the... Uh, more, like the morale, the chaplains, everything. He even mentioned one thing about masturbation and that, which, cause I, every, almost every major book I've read about, nobody talks about like the sex life, like the sex. It happens guys. Like it's like, it's like sex and civil war. Like when I read about like civil history, nobody wanted to talk about it. It was like, it was like the hush hush. hush, hush. It was like the, the cookie cart. The only thing I learned about the Civil War was like through guys and generals like Gettysburg, and it was like the the cookie you know, the, the long soliloquy, about the, like the politics of the war. Yeah, p- p- real people don't talk like that. So if you want to like know like the the, the down and dirty like the day to day stuff, don't that's, that's not the way. <laughs> yeah, but uh, I'm sorry, guys, that was a, was a bit of a tangent on me from that part. Uh, a good book to read about like the allies of German Imperial soldiers, the uh, you know, forgotten soldiers. It's uh, David Olu-, Olu Soga. He wrote the world's war published in 2014. It talks about the Indian army, talks about the French um, Senegalese tilliers the uh, the Chinese laborers and all that that worked behind the front lines. goes into that, the politics, the racial politics at the time, which, um, you know, Typical America, for us, we did publish memorandums to the French Army when they took some of our African-American soldiers into them, like the Harlem Hellfighters. And they said, oh, yeah, please separate the our, our African-American troops from um, the French population. They didn't say African-American. I'm not going to say that word. They used the... They di- used the... They used the dirty word. Dirty yeah, word. The dirty word, yeah. Yeah, it's bad. It's bad, yeah. And, uh, yeah, which... Um, what I wrote about, like, front... like between france and american like the race relations that since france was racist but they were like well we're like culturally racist so you can like uplift yourself even if like you're born in africa or something so it to me it it kind of sounds like a racism is not as bad as your racism it's like die racism i mean they're both kind of bad but would you say that the american racism was a lot worse than the french racism <sighs> it depends who you ask man i mean i think me personally, I think so, but that's a loaded of question. I'm sure it's still being it's debated loaded, today. It's a lot of question. Very in, controversial. And France has its fair share of racist history in the past that we can't really shy away from. And so is the British. Yep. And yeah. the and the Germans, to be honest, China. I think China's got that, to that problem too. Hmm. Like modern politics, or in the I past, And the either either or. Well, the modern politics. There is this whole issue with the Chinese Muslims in the country. Okay. But you know that's probably a different topic. I feel like everyone's affected by racism. Oh yeah, do it's every, like do it. That's like one of the biggest factors. Yeah. Like the more you the more you read about history, like the more you get involved, like you realize like these typical themes keep popping up. They won't stop. That's depressing, man. That's why I drink. Yeah, don't drink that, man. You gotta do it. You gotta get this out the right way. Uh, Jeremy Paxson, he is a journalist. of Britain's uh, better journalist in the last few years he wrote a book called great britain's great war and he actually does do his, his research and everything uh maybe a little more of the myths too like um what the heck did i read last last week with him i can he does give like a general he's good for like the general reader who wants to just get dip 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 their feet into this mm. so great britain's great war by jeremy paxton written in 2013 i recommend uh i think the last two points i'll make is um uh, william Phil Potts books, the war of attrition find the first world war, which came out in 2014 and bloody victory, the sacrifice of the Somme*, which came out in 2009, uh, sacrifice, the bloody victories, about the Somme offensive and talks about while bad, it did break down the German army and does go into detail on that. And then *War of attrition is about like the, like the learning curve, the, um, the total war aspect of it. He's good. I definitely recommend him to read if you want to understand, you know, how the mm-hmm. great war is fought and um yeah i think that's the big one oh uh john terrain douglas Haig, the educated soldier he wrote back in 1963 about douglas Haig. he's the only buyer for on douglas Haig, which I, I find included in there because i think it's important and uh alexander watson's ring of steel germany and austria hungary in world war one the people's War. we've talked a lot about the allies so i'll, I'll give a shout out a few books to uh essential powers and also if you're interested in the ottoman empire you should check out eugene rogan's book on the uh good the fall of the ottomans the great war in the middle east written in 2015 good lord how many books do you have i have a lot of books i pulled a lot of world war one books out i have more than probably the local library mm. it's it's one of my favorites my, my favorite t- periods of history man probably more than the the world war ii or the american civil war Fair enough. I got my fair points my yeah. interest. One last thing, if anyone wants to like, watch any films, there is two films on All's Quiet on the Western Front. Yes. A novel that, that was based on now by uh, Eric Marie R- Remark. Remark, yep. And that really goes into like, the whole pointlessness of the war and the tragedy of war. One was made back in the 1930s. I like the first big... The, 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 the black and white. Yep. There's like the 1970s version. I only saw the colored version, the 1970s one. Which, has got its problems, but I liked it. There's also a Gallipoli movie in like 1980. 80, 81. 81. With Mel by Gibson. directed by Peter Weir. I liked it again. There is a series that came out around 2015. Mm-hmm. That's called Gallipoli, which goes more involved in that campaign. That's really the stuff I got for like the World War I aspects. It doesn't get as much attention as World War II, but it should because World War I does segue into World War II yes like history is all one big cycle It's all one giant web that is connected mm-hmm. I, I think that's brilliant man i think that's a good way to end the podcast you got any questions for the audience folks if you disagree with anything i said feel free to contact me or like ask me and my brother yeah same thing here if you have had you want going to clarify anything or ask like why why do i why do i think this way or whatever i can give you i can try to help you out with that if you have any suggestions you want us to do for our next podcast i'm up it's up in the air uh you've read a lot about like the Holocaust because we have like the 75th anniversary of the We used to have the same of the Ash being liberated. We could do that. I don't know too much about the Holocaust compared to you. You've read a lot more than I have. So I guess how about like the Eastern Front and like the mass killings by the Einzelgruppen and like the hunger policy. Mm-hmm. Like the actual like methodical build-up and like the camps. Right. I still gotta get through those books by like Raul Hilbert and Lawrence Reist and you you and, and Timothy Snyder. Okay. So that's just a, that's a learning process for me because I only started reading about the Holocaust and death like last year. Okay, so it it, it it it's gonna take a while. All right, I mean I could do another book review on like the World War, like the Versailles Treaty or something if people are interested in it. You could. My my, my opinion, I don't know. There's there's like a thousand better uh, podcasts and YouTube channels out there that talk about that. Well, that's a nice start. And they'll start small, work its mm-hmm. way up. Uh, maybe this before the end of the week, our vacation, we'll uh, do our a list of uh, top 10 skiers you don't want to be. Oh uh, yeah. So folks, we did all this in Utah uh, ski trip. I think my brother mentioned it in the beginning. Yeah. So yes, uh, we could do a podcast on like the top 10 skis you don't want to be. hmm. Um, a shout out to a combat veteran. the are kind of based on his, uh, arsenal, Rodriguez. all those videos. Yeah. Uh, that guy's awesome. He's funny. Yeah. Sorry, man. We're, we're not veterans or we're, we're civilians, but we do find your shit hilarious and we hope you're doing good. And you, you guys keep up the good work and, you know, keep your head up. Yeah, so maybe that'd be in the cards. We could do that. We can, we can talk about that. Hmm. But uh, yeah, I think that's all I got for this podcast. Josh, you got anything else? That's all I got. What do you say? How should we sign off? Uh, well, the last time we signed off with a quote from DS9, right? The Yes. yes. All right, do you want to go with a sci-fi reference or you want to go with a history reference today? No, no I'm kind of drawing blank on history. We'll see you sci-fi. All right, let's do the sci-fi. All right, so we are currently watching Picard. So we can do a Star Trek reference again because I love Star Trek. <laughs> Alright, for the Klingons, today is, is a good day to die. Today is a good day to die. I love the Klingons. I, I love like, the, the 90s, 80s and 90s version from like TNG and DS9, where like they're loud and obnoxious, but they got big hearts and they're warriors and everything. I haven't seen Star Trek Discovery yet. I do not want to see Star Trek Discovery. I do not like the way the Klingons are. It's like, the no, no guy. That's not how it works. And I say if she ended with, To boldly go, where no one has gone before. All right, we're we're getting silly, everybody. So uh, thanks for listening in and hope you guys are having a good one. Bye for now. Bye-bye.